What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to another episode of Faith Unaltered. I am just one of the hosts for tonight's episode, Tyler Fowler, and we are talking about icons. We're exploring the East. We've got a video that I will be live reacting to. I've never seen this video. I've waited all week to watch this video, and here we are. Uh, the guys have watched the video from what I'm aware of, and so they will be responding. Okay, some of them have, some of them haven't. Um, so David and I, it looks like we'll be live reacting and the rest of the crew will be responding to this video by Jonathan Peugeot, why we venerate icons. But before we get started, David brother, how was your week and what is new? Man, a lot of things happened this week. Uh, yeah, it was, it's a long, been a long one, man. Uh, we had, uh, started the week out with, uh, uh, racking some wine in our uh, Italian rosé. Um, we're doing that right now. So uh, we racked that into uh, um, new carboys and stabilized it and cleared it. And, you know, now it's looking pretty and it's a rosé color instead of a cider color. Nice. <laughs> but then I had to go qualify at the range. That was fun. But I only got to shoot 30 rounds and drive two hours to get there That's not even enough <laughs> to get started bro i know right uh, you know, they were like oh you're good it was just a quarterly qual you're good i was like no i'm not <laughs> it's like i just drove two hours right. but also took the kid to uh bno uh railroad museum i saw that so that was fun and nice. then yeah i got to today and got really frustrated at my daughter's uh 2001 honda accord which i had to put brakes on today <laughs> so i am like just wiped and i finished out my uh my class and i'm all out, out of school here for the next couple months which i'm Good. you know kind of excited for the break and you know be able to actually produce more shows like this one right on man right on so i am glad you're out of school too we can finally finally march is coming up and we're going to focus on this gospel documentary that we've been itching just to get mm -hmm. out and so i'm really really excited about that but josh davidson brother what I cannot say I love. So if y'all haven't noticed, check out our names. Like this is kind of where we all are in this, um, in this topic, right? I'm inquiring about it. I, I, I really like what I, what I'm hearing about, you know, just the subject of icons. And so we wanted to bring that to you, but we've got a whole host of different people here tonight on with different views about this topic, but Josh Davidson, brother, how have you been? I'm good. I'm good. Had a, a long trying day at work i'm glad to be sitting down yeah um but i am particularly pleased to do this episode i thought it was very timely that peugeot put this uh, uh that this uh, uh presentation out yeah um i was the one that that put the push to to do this episode so i'm glad to see how many faces we have this is fantastic i'm so excited uh, i'm glad to have teddy back with us but this is it's really cool uh this is this is going to be a really good episode um, and hopefully we have, uh, we have the, the, uh, you know, discipline to get through the whole video so we that do. we can have a really good discussion about it. Cause there's a lot that Peugeot brings up in this and it's going to be a great springboard for the conversation. Uh, especially since he himself is an icon carver. And right. so this is his namesake, uh, that, that we're talking about here. And so, uh, I say that with great reverence. I have a lot of respect for him. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really excited for this. What better person to review and react to than an icon carver himself. And so right. thank you for bringing this subject. We'll get more in the background uh, as, as we go, but Josh Sherman, how have you been, bro? How's the podcast going? How's the 
conversion going and how are you doing, <laughs> sir? I'm doing well. Um, yeah, it's been a, a good, but busy week. I actually have a couple of people that I just hired that are starting up. So my brain is a little bit less full than, than usual of things I absolutely have to get done on any given day. And yeah. um, that's been helpful in preparing for this and, and just starting to think more about uh, some of the stuff that, I, that I'm working on. So um, I know Tyler knows because I've sent him some stuff, but I, I've been working on um, uh, really a, basically a book on, on uh, Paul's use of themes and Old Testament passages in Romans 9 through 11. And um, excited about that. So I'm um, starting to kind of get some of those ideas out there and kind of see what people think. And then uh, I'll be developing that further. So, yeah, I've got to look at that this weekend, bro. So and I thank you for including me on that. Like, I'm really I'm proud of you for for taking that step into writing this book. I know you've been kind of contemplating it for a while now, and you've actually taking are, are taking the steps and drafting it and getting it all organized. And so I'm really excited to see what you've got together. Dane Von Ace, brother, the Methodox. How are you doing, bro? And what's new? I'm doing great. Uh, just enjoying life and family and church. And uh, I'm blessed beyond what I deserve because we have a very merciful God that we serve. Amen. Um, my name, Methodox, there is a play <laughs> on the fact that I am a pastor in the Methodist church, but I am very intrigued by the Orthodox church. I've been uh, looking into it quite a lot. I've been going to the Vesper services at our local Orthodox church um, pretty regularly. And I have come to fully embrace the Orthodox doctrine on iconography and icons. So um, just tell you my bias there, but you see it in my name, Methodox there. Um, I've even started uh, collecting my own um, icons and using them in my own prayer life. And um, long story short, I started reading St. John of Damascus and some of the history around Nicaea too. And I was like, all right, I'm all in. So um, if you had talked to me about this uh, topic three, four, five years ago, um, I would have said a whole world of different things. Yeah. But uh, it's funny how we we grow in our faith and um, in our journey with Christ. So this is where I'm at now. Right on. We're, we're Dane and I, and just for our listeners, like Dane and I have been conversing a lot over this topic just over the past couple of weeks. Sherman has been the one to really get me into studying the Eastern Orthodox. And I thank you for that, bro, because I would not have known what I do now if not for you. And I'm glad that you've done that. And but Dane and I are really, you know, in that same place where we're, we're you know, putting ideas back and forth, bouncing ideas off of each other. And I love the fellowship that you and I have had over these past couple of weeks, bro. Like, I feel like I've gotten to know you in a new way. You know what I mean? And so I love you for it. I love uh, you too, bro. Sam. Yeah, you know, I was going to yeah. say, you know, how we grow in faith. You know, I was just going to say how we also backslide in faith. Kind of like, you know, uh, my Methodox friend here. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking about yourself. My bad. <laughs> no, I'm way far back. <laughs> I'm, I'm worse than backslidden. I'm off the hill, dude. <laughs> I'm just it's true. Sometimes we grow, sometimes we backslide, and we have that's to right. test the spirits uh, and, and all that. So, um, yeah, it's that's why conversations like this are, are good, and um, yeah. we can we can test each other's opinions. Amen. Amen. Dale, the real icon seeker. And uh, let me just say this, Dale, before you get – uh, started with your introduction. I love the name. And why do I say that? Right? Because Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. And so I love it. I love how David uh, put that on there for you. And so Dale, how have you been doing brother and anything new with you? Uh, yeah, so I'm doing good. Um, busy as usual um, in terms of multiple podcasts. So again, this is 
week where I have three uh, podcasts. I just did one yesterday. Um, as Teddy knows, on the Shroud um, of Turin with a bunch of experts. Funnily enough, looking at the history of the Shroud from 1204 and before. So that involved a lot about images and icons and stuff like that. Um, and then have this show. And then tomorrow, I think uh, we're all doing a show with Marvin Wallace on um, various issues like, uh, you know, euthanasia, abortion, and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. What time is that, Dale? Just for everybody, so everybody knows. Uh, 9 a.m. Toronto time, because he's in Hong Kong. So he's like 12 hours ahead of us. So we got to work it out there. Right. Right. I didn't see the comment. Someone was asking something about me, but. Yeah, they, they're asking if you're using, like, if you've got your computer mic on instead of your uh, external mic, which is where that feedback might be coming from. But yeah, yeah, I'm using my laptop okay. uh, computer tonight for that. So fair enough. Fair enough. All right, brother. I'm glad to have you here. And Teddy, how have you been, ma'am? It's been a while since you've been on Faith Unaltered. I'm excited to have you here. I think we all are. And so for those, since it's been a while, just go ahead and for our listeners that don't know you, give a little bit of background about yourself and how have you been, ma'am? You're muted. <laughs> there you go. I'm doing well. Thank you. And it's great to be back uh, here talking with y'all yes. and, uh, and also some new, new friends too. And, uh, I've just been super busy working on uh, shroud topics and I've been neck deep and it's going to be the death of me, this rigor mortis <laughs> research. <laughs> In more ways than one. <laughs> but yeah. I think not doing all right. Good, good. I'm glad that you're here. I always value your opinion. You've really got me, you and Del both have really got me interested in just the shroud topic in and of itself, right? And and just listening to y'all, I used to be a, sh a shroud skeptic. Mm -hmm. And now I believe that you guys have convinced me that wow, the shroud is real. And so, Teddy, I value your opinion highly. And I am excited to hear what you have to say about Thank this topic. Thank you. Tonight. And I value your opinion as well. And Thank you. Here. I appreciate it. Andrew, the last but definitely not least, the curious Elliot brother. How welcome back. This is the second time you're on Faith Unaltered in a row, and I'm super excited to have you back with us, brother. How are he you? He was actually he was actually on CSG last week. This is his first time on Faith Unaltered. Well, true. I mean, the parent, the daughter company, you know, it's it's the same, oh. right? It comes from the it same matters. Root. It, it matters. Okay, fair enough. But welcome, Andrew. We're glad to have you anyway. <laughs> Hey, likewise. Oh, I was on the Faith Unaltered stream about Sola Scriptura a few weeks well, ago. Well, there you go. Um, yeah. yeah, so second stream back. Um, man, Tyler's so nice to me. He he takes the least knowledgeable person, <laughs> just gives me an invite. I really like to think of myself as that as that crowd member who gets the special access pass to be on with you all. But no, so um, just a brief synopsis where I am. I'm, I'm freshly out of the Reformed tradition a few months now. And so... Um, I don't like to use the term deconstructing, but there's a lot of unlearning and relearning and just being careful and, and being careful does spark a lot of curiosity. But one thing is for sure, I've become all the more convinced of the icon of God, of, of the person of Christ. Um, and, and because I know that his life, his perfection, his resurrection are things that I can really cling to and hope, um, I, I try to honor that. 
uh, by understanding what kind of church did he set up and in, in, in things that may seem trivial like icons, really what kind of role or what kind of significance do they play in the life of the church and the life of the believer? And that's why I especially appreciate um, uh, Jonathan's video because I was, you know, Dr. Ortland started this whole thing and I've been looking at a lot of the scholarly Catholic and Orthodox responses. Well, he's really broken it down and, and given it to you from a layman's perspective. And I think I was really missing that. And I, I love the video that we're about to react to. So good to be here. And thanks for having me. Absolutely, brother. Absolutely. All right, Josh, David, I will hand it over to you guys. If there's anything that y'all want to kind of preface before this video, please feel free. Uh, and then we will get started. So guys, this isn't like a debate. You know, I come at this from, uh, uh, like a, a position where I don't know enough about the whole issue. So you're not going to, you'll probably hear some pushback. We'll probably get into obviously what we think about it, but uh, I'm not, we're not looking to debate. We're looking to react to the video and have fun with this. Cause this is our fellowship night and we're all, yeah. uh, uh, unless I'm an anathema, which I probably am to Josh Sherman, but no. <laughs> but anyways, uh, no, Hey, you know what? Yeah. I, in all honesty, though, you know, I love I love everybody here and I'm excited to to get this underway. So, Josh, I don't know if you have control of the video to get it started, but buddy, it's all you, bro. OK, go ahead and pull the day, the, the, the video up there, Dale. This. OK, all right, you guys can see that. <clears throat> yep. I just, I just realized you guys. Guys are going to be listening to my audio, so we're going to have the the noise going the whole time. But it is what it is. All right. So, who follow? You guys are hearing the video. Yep. All right. Cool. Online uh, discussions and battles and polemics. There has been a recent polemic about icons. Um, you know, some people have put out some videos criticizing the orthodox use of icons, um, and so. Many people have asked me to respond, and in some ways I guess I will, but I'm not going to respond in the same manner. I'm not a person, I'm not a uh, scholar, and I'm not a big fan of the scholarly approach and trying to justify this or that from proof text and to justify the accuracy or, you know, the falseness of this or that sort. Do we have a freeze out? We have a play. Dale, hit play. Okay. Source or this or that text. You know, I have nothing against that. It's fine. And in some ways, I'll leave other people to do that. But I do think that there is a deeper issue that gets ignored when we are looking at the question in that way. And the deeper question is something like the very thrust of revelation itself, the very way in which God is redeeming the world in the biblical story and you could say in the universal story. And so that is the way that I want to look at it, to kind of look at things, maybe back up a little and ask questions that people, as they get into the details of things, uh, seem to not be asking. And so uh, that's the way we're going to look at it. 
Now, of course, the first way thing to start with is to start with the text, right? The, the prescription, which is that in the Ten Commandments, but not just in the Ten Commandments, obviously in several other places, there is a prescription about making images. That prescription is, let's say the root of it could be said to be in the Ten Commandments. All the other uh, descriptions of it are like, let's say, exemplifications or detailed version of the law that you will not make graven images, uh, you will not bow down and worship them, you will not make images of false gods, and, and you will not bow down before them. You won't worship the images of false gods. Now, of course, most people will understand that this is not a prescription against images themselves, because you know, just a few moments, although, although some people go that far, but I think that's uh, quite dishonest because further on in the text, God will tell Moses to have images made, have, have images made on the veils of the temple, have images made, you know, on the Ark of the Covenant to have these angels uh, carved on the Ark of the Covenant. And, uh, and then ultimately in the temple, there will be several images. There'll be bulls, there'll be images of fruits uh, and, and different types of images. But the cherub are the most important to understand because the cherub are described as at least partly human figures that, that have uh, human faces. Um, we don't know what the cherubs look like in, the, in the, the carvings. I honestly think it was probably something like a, a sphinx of some kind, you know, because they're described as being a mixture of different animals and human. So that's neither here nor there. So, so the idea is that it's not necessarily, of course, a criticism of uh, image making, but it is a criticism of making idols and also uh, bowing down and worshiping in front of these idols. Now, Whoa, wow. Okay. Hey, what happened? What happened? Can, can you guys hear me now or? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, sorry. When I was sharing the video and I was talking, no one could hear me, but I was just asking when I paused it, uh, are there timestamps here? Or are you guys just going to shout out, stop the video just so I know when to. Um, yeah, we can, we'll, we'll just, we'll just let you know to, to, to pause the video real quick. If we have a question that we want to address or something that we want to bring up later. Okay. I, one thing I will say, um, I think the thing that I appreciate about this the most is that he's starting off with, with probably the best question. So um, thinking about the way that God is redeeming the world, thinking about what God created mm. for and what he's bringing it back to. If we start by asking the question, you know, uh, like, you know, what does the 10, uh, what do the 10 commandments mean? We're starting in the middle of the story. And, and sometimes I think we can get a little bit lost in the details there by asking this question, or at least framing it in, in terms of the whole conversation or like the whole flow of, of creation and redemption, I think that's the right place to start. Because if you don't have that and you don't have a number of the key concepts that are connected into, uh, into this conversation, then none of this is really going to make that much sense. Uh, and, and we can get into more of what that is. But I, I just appreciate the fact that he kind of started there, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear you, man. And I also like how he was like, you know, I'm not going to hit this from like a detailed scholarly perspective and stuff like that. I, I think that that's wise. Right. You don't always need to, to go that route, although it's important in several different, you know, for several different reasons. Uh, 
we have we've had that and you know you can get lost in the weeds with all this but uh i also agree with you josh on this aspect and and i think that if you i i was just thinking about the uh when he was talking about this uh the greek orthodox church that i uh was looking at the other day um and how beautiful Whoa. it was i was looking <laughs> at it on uh on YouTube, you know, they're just going through what they do and how they worship and stuff like this is a Greek one, um, a little bit different than some others that I saw. But uh, in the middle, as soon as you walk in, you have Mary and and, and uh, Jesus. Right. And it's it's huge. It's huge. Right. And you're going in there and they're like, OK, that's to remind you of the incarnation. And then on the top of their dome ceiling, they have a dome. And it's just Jesus in the center of it, which I, which is for them. They're like, you know, Jesus is the center. He's everything. So he's looking down and then the saints line the wall, you know, uh, in, in circles all the way down. Uh, and that is to remind them of their participation in the, uh, you know, that this is an ongoing thing, you know, the church victorious church militant, and you're, you're walking in there and it's all part of this grand theme of what God's restoring the earth to. So I thought that was just really cool. Very, very beautiful. Uh, so yeah, I, I just wanted to hit on that a little bit i'm proud of you david you're actually looking into this that's 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 nice you know what well, i mean when, it, when i only have one class i have to you have to <laughs> yeah. you know and so i'll just i'll just when say I'm, when i'm stuffed with three classes it's a little hard right i'll i'll just say this so i was doing some research and um a friend of mine and i were talking about the place of the bible in uh, eastern orthodox and there is this, I think it's an assumption that a lot of people who aren't orth Eastern Orthodox or just Orthodox in general, um, no difference there, by the way, but but that aren't Orthodox have this aspect or, or have this kind of vision that tradition kind of trumps scripture in, in some senses. And I just want to commend Peugeot here for putting and showing where really, even if he didn't intend to do it like this, which I don't think he did, but he does it anyway, is that he shows where the Eastern Orthodox actually holds the Bible. It's first. It's in first place. And I've heard, you know, just different different people say that, well, you know, tradition trumps scripture, this, that, and the other. And I've been reading a, a catechumen book uh, by Father Thomas Hopko. And in the section um, of divine inspiration and, and sources of Christianity, right, I just have to say that that's not true. Um, they do the Eastern Orthodox do hold the Bible, the Scripture, the inspired Word of God, all of those things in first place. And so it's not sola scriptura like Protestants say, Scripture alone that gives us our authority, but it is prima scriptura. And I like how Peugeot, whether intentionally or not, he starts with the Bible in addressing these arguments about icons. And so I'll just leave it at that. Tyler, can I add one quick thing Please. Um, to that point? Yeah, I had I had the false assumption, too, before I started going to um, the local Orthodox church and checking it out for myself. Yeah. I had that false assumption that the Orthodox weren't as big on the Bible as Protestants. And I was amazed when I realized that in their liturgy, they're chanting uh, the Bible. You know, they're they're chanting Psalms. They're chanting gospel. They're chanting out of all sorts of books of the Bible. And I realized that they actually had more Bible reading than Protestant churches. Um, now, they don't have as long of sermons, but 
in terms of the actual biblical passages read, it's yeah. it ends up being more than in Protestant churches. So I, I was like, okay, that assumption was false, and I need to I need to change my my mind there. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. Let's. Uh, oh, by the way, Dell. Um, just so you know, just technical side of the thing. If you do mute, uh, it doesn't affect the sound of the video. And I know somebody had said something about maybe speeding the video up. Is that accurate or? Yeah, if we could put the video on like a 1.5 speed, that might uh, might make it a little bit easier to get through the whole uh, presentation. Yeah. All right. Okay. Let's do it to it. What's interesting to ask is questions that I guess some people don't don't ask, which is what's the deal with the second commandment? What is the reason for the second commandment? As Christians, we need to ask that. Why is there a second commandment? So another example, of course, there is a commandment about, uh, you know, following the Sabbath, which is right next to the commandment uh, about images. And, you know, most Christians do not celebrate the Sabbath. And so why is that? Why don't we celebrate the Sabbath? And the answer is usually Christ. The answer is that the reason for that, let's say, commandment was revealed in the person of Christ. And, you know, Christ in his descent into death, let's say, accomplished the greatest Sabbath. And because of that, we celebrate the resurrection as a kind of new beginning, as the, you know, the fulfillment of the Sabbath into a day of eternity. And so that is the, the reason why we celebrate the, the deep reason, you know, why we celebrate on Sunday rather than celebrate on Saturday. And we believe, and I hope people believe this, or else why are you not celebrating the Sabbath? We believe that the reason for the second command, this, the, the commandment about the Sabbath is Christ. And Christ reveals to us the deepest meaning of this commandment. And so that is true of, you know, I would say most of what is in scripture, if we can see in scripture, the key that Christ brings to it, then that is the highest aspect of it. And I think that that's the question we need to ask again. Why do we have the second commandment? What is the purpose of it? And so of course it makes sense that you wouldn't want to make images of false gods because you know, like you won't want to worship false gods that it would be of course completely inappropriate. But the question is why didn't God give us an image of himself? And of course, then the problem is, well, of course God doesn't, God is beyond that, right? God is in heaven. God is spirit. God is not uh, something that can be seen. You see all over in scripture, right? The, the, the notion that God is telling Moses that you cannot see my face. If you see my face, it will destroy you, right? It will, it will. It's not in some ways that God doesn't have a face, but that his infinite face or however you want to phrase it will consume reality if you are, if you come into contact with it. And so because of that, then Moses cannot look at God's face and no one is allowed to look at God's face. Now, Again, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the reason for the second commandment? And so we need to think about it also in another way. It's like, is there a place in scripture where it is said that there is an image of God? Can we find that? And I think the answer is yes. And I think the answer is that the image of God in scripture is man. The image of God in scripture is Adam. And this of course makes sense even more now of the second commandment. Because there is a sense in which the image of God in man has been tarnished or has been broken or has been disfigured. And so because of that, it is no longer accessible. And this seems to be something which is going on in, for example, the very revelation of the Ten Commandments. Because what happens when God, when Moses really comes into the very presence of God, his face, his image, the visual aspect of him begins to shine with glory so much that just as in a lower way, but just as we cannot look upon the face of God, the Israelites cannot look upon the face of Moses. And he has to veil himself. He has to cover his face because you could say in some ways, the face of the, the, the image of God is being restored in Moses. 
but it is too much for people to be able to tolerate. And so just as there are veils on the temple, Moses puts a veil on his face in order to cover the radiance of his transformation. Can we pause it there? Things. It's pretty. Yeah. Oh man. Um, so there's so much to that. And that is such a fundamental connection that I think it really frames the entire conversation because you not only have, you know, Adam is made in the image of God, humanity is made in the image of God, but later on in the New Testament, you have Christ, the perfect image of God, right? And um, as we behold Christ, we are transformed from glory to glory, just like Moses, right? Um, that frames the whole thing, right? Um, so um, this is the fundamental connection, and this is the fundamental reason not to make um, images of other gods or images of created things is that um, to make an image of uh, of a god that's represented by a bull or, or trying to represent Yahweh with a bull or uh, trying to you know make other, these other images, in some sense it's an abdication of what it means to be human to be in the image of God. The question then becomes: Do we see a pivot point on some of that in the New Testament? And, uh, and where does it go from there? And does that feed into how we understand um, people in the image of God now, people in the body of Christ now, and uh, how that feeds into the conversation around icons? Um, so I just I think this is, again, one of those things that's just so fundamental. I'm very glad that he brings it up in the conversation. I thought also it was a really interesting point that he mentions the parallel there between God covering his face before Moses, yeah. Moses leaving from that place, and it being insisted that Moses cover his face because of the glory that was shared, even from God's uh, tangential space, right? He saw God's back, let's say. Um, and and that was sufficient to make Moses's face intolerable to look at. I love the way that he described that as if you saw, if, if God showed his face, it would consume reality. It's simply too much. Um, I, I thought that was a really great thing. It actually, uh, it, it kind of brings to my mind the kind of reverence uh, that that I I still admire about the the reform tradition, seeing God as sovereign as the as the absolute power of something to be greatly revered and bowed before, um, it seems to to connote that same thing to speak this way that God's face is something that's so so other that reality couldn't actually house it in any other way than what mm -hmm. He did with the incarnation. Uh, and so I, I find this to be something that's going to tie in really importantly later. I want to make a few comments, too, about this, uh, this truth that humans are image bearers of God. And, and so you could say that, you know, God has made icons for himself um, of himself and put them here on earth. And um, Christ, of course, just as he is like king of kings and lord of lords, he's also the icon of icons. Right. Um, would be a way we could think about it. And, <laughs> and I just want to um, point out, and you, I'm sure that many people listening to me on the other side of the fence will say, you're stretching this, Dane, and you're fine to say that, but God outlaws murder because it's iconoclasm. Hmm. So you may think I'm wow. stretching it too far. Genesis 9. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But you are destroying the image of God on earth. It's iconoclasm. So, and then one other point I'll make, and then, and, and I know we got to get back to the video. Um, the moment where Moses is uh, 
too difficult to look at because he's he's radiant and glowing uh, amongst a stiff-necked Hebrew people. Um, that sort of foreshadows what's going to happen on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus Christ. In that moment, though, John and Peter talk about it differently than not being able to look at Jesus. They say things like, we beheld his glory, right, on mm. the mountain. And so there is a sense in which in the new covenant, in the new, um, in the new creation, uh, as redeemed uh, saints, we, we now are prepared to have our eyes fixed upon Christ. And so in the old covenant, we were only able to hear God and not see God. But in the new covenant, we are able to both hear and see God through Christ. I would be careful, though, Dane, on on just one point there is the idea of iconoclast and that idea in Genesis. Uh, iconoclast was a name that was kind of forced on those people. Uh, you know, they didn't want to destroy the images. They wanted to struggle with the conception of what that was uh, and what it meant. So they would say that there are icon strugglers. So I would. I would just be careful to make not not to make an association fallacy there. And I don't know if, you know, you're kind of doing that, but it kind of sounds like that just from where I was sitting. So just kind of be careful on that. Oh, so, I appreciate the warning. I was just I was putting it that way um, just to make the point more strongly. Um, I'm not saying that it's a it's an exact equivalent um, to what was happening, you know, around the, the time of Nicaea two or the Reformation Reformation. I was just trying to put it in very strong language to to show how God looks at us as as his image bearers. And that's why it's it's so serious when you kill a human. It's not that serious when you kill a fish and eat it. The reason is because right. that's not an image bearer, but it's very serious when you destroy an image bearer. So that was the I wasn't trying to say it's yeah. it's exactly. Equal. Yeah. OK, cool. Yeah. that you know I was just just thought I'd throw that in there. A little bit. Of course, yeah. that's the reason why we're commanded to love one another and to um because every person bears the image of god and and one of the things that i, I just wanted to add in terms of with the idea of because you know it like most people i think we hear okay we are created in the image of god and we think okay god is this amorphous being yet we somehow share an image with him and then I don't know, about a year or two ago, it struck me with my work regarding the Shroud of Turin that, well, perhaps what he really means is we're created in the image of God. That's the miracle that he left us on that linen cloth. That's his image. And that's, you know, God incarnate. And we are created in that same sort of image in terms of in human form mm -hmm. and so maybe there's really a lot more of a literal um a very literal meaning they're not that oh it's this nebulous concept of we're you know we don't really know what god looks like but he somehow looks like you know or we somehow look somewhat like him. i don't think so i think that what what we're created in the image of is God incarnate. So um, that's my two cents worth. Yes, exactly. That's that's clearly seen in the church fathers. I mean, they they very much see humanity made in the image of Christ. Mm -hmm. But but I'm but I'm talking about yeah in, in terms of even what we see on the holy shroud that there is his image and we can 
see it. And, you know, so it's just, it's tangible, uh, you know, where, where we see it. But yes, I, I think it's a lot more literal than, than that nebulous idea. Right on. Okay, I think we're ready to jump back in, Dale. Amazing if you kind of now start to understand that there's something in the very thrust of revelation which is moving towards this idea of the restoration of the glory of God in man, the restoration of the glory of God in the image of man. Because think about it, it is visual. That is, he had to hide his face from the sight of others because in that face there was too much glory. There was too much going on for people to be able to stand. Now I think that this continues on in the notion of of the revelation uh, in scripture. And so there is this movement from something like the name from something like that which is invisible, that which is spiritual, into that which becomes visible and embodied. That is, of course, the very uh, movement from the glory of God into the tabernacle itself. It is the same movement that I'm telling you about how there's this glimmer, this transformation of Moses as he comes down the mountain, but this gets taken up as revelation progresses and as God promises to fill the world with his spirit, to fill the world with his glory. So in the prophetic text, we start to see a very strange thing uh, start to happen. So in the prophetic text, all of a sudden, this image, of man starts to appear. And it's very, uh, very fascinating because what is going on in this question? So in the book of Daniel and in the book of Ezekiel, the prophets have this perception. They see on a throne sitting next to God, you know, let's say it's sitting. And it's important to understand that the figure is sitting. It's, the figure is not standing. If the figure was standing, we would understand that the figure is like an angel that is serving the king, right? It's like a servant serving the king. But no, there is a throne there. And the figure that is there is sitting on the throne. and and sitting on the throne, he becomes the one that is served, the one that has to be served by the angels. And what does, what do the prophets see? They see the figure, the image of someone like the son of man, of someone that has the image of the son of man. And this is very fascinating, isn't it? What's going on? All of a sudden, the possibility of seeing this figure standing next to, uh, sitting in the throne next to the, next to the throne of God, and also being, let's say, in the glory of God. And so, right, this image that Ezekiel describes of the, the four uh, cherubs, like these four, these four wheels of a chariot, that is like the earth itself, and above, you know, sitting, you know, surrounded by a rainbow uh, on a throne is this image of the Son of Man. Now, of course, you know, most Christians will understand that what he's seeing is is the divine logos, but already the logos as in the figure of a man that is already Christ uh, as being the one who will, now I'm going to push you a little bit, who will restore the image of God in man. And so this is what's going on. That's why he's seeing a son of man, even before we know who that is, he's seeing a son of man sitting on a throne next to God, because that in some ways is the plan of God from, you know, from the fall itself is to restore. And even before that, even in the creation of man, the, the, the purpose of God was to instill his image into the world, you know, uh, and, and now it is to restore it in Christ. So this is what is going on. So it's all kind of there in the thrust of revelation. And we can understand it, like I said, as a very let's say, as the very structure of Revelation itself that is moving from, the there the earth, moving from the invisible. Um, so th this is something that Father John Baer brings out in his intro um, to Athanasius' On the Incarnation, uh, that this idea that it's really not a stretch to say that if we really start to think about it intensely, it seems like the purpose of creation was God wanting to create and then incarnate himself in creation. Because that's where we eventually see things brought to in the, the, the telos, the, the kind of the perfection of, of creation, the restoration of creation is we see Christ incarnate. We see the church becoming part of the body of Christ, the two becoming one in the, in the sense of the bride of Christ and Christ. Like all of that is the end goal. And if that's the end goal, then is that not the purpose of creation in the first place? 
right? That is stunning. And I, I think it's a huge part of, of this conversation as well. I agree, Josh. I think that you're onto something. And given the fact that, so two things I want to point out, one uh, about the video, and then the other one is kind of a technical aspect uh, that I want to request from Dell. But I, I kind of see where he's going here, given the fact that Genesis lays out for us, and this is revealed you know, further along in Scripture, that the image of God within us is broken not destroyed, and I think that's important to make given the backgrounds that we come from, but Absolutely. broken. And given the fact that, and in, in Peugeot's already alluded to this, uh, that Jesus is fulfilling these things, like his example with the Sabbath, right? Jesus has fulfilled this in a sense. In, in another sense, he has fulfilled the entire law of Moses. That's why Paul can make statements like, this has been abolished in, in, in one sense. And so I think that that is... Given the big picture here, granted, we've been talking, you know, kind of zoomed in small picture, but if we pull back and look at this big picture, the pieces start maybe for someone that, you know, is iffy on this subject, they start connecting. And this is the point that I want to make is that this entire conversation revolves around the incarnation of Christ. This is why, in the first place, that I myself have bought an icon picture of Jesus, an image of Jesus with little children on his lap and what that represents, right? The, the icon is called, Let the Children Come to Me. And there were personal reasons why I bought that, a debate that I'm having with my wife currently <laughs> about this uh, subject. But but that's, that's the big picture, is Jesus and his incarnation centers around this topic wholeheartedly. And so what I want to do, honestly, is go back and read Athanasius's on the incarnation and make those further connections because he himself was an icon of duel, someone who venerated icons. And so I think that's really interesting, and I want to hear what he's got to say. My second point, and then we can get back to the video if nobody else has got anything. Dale, is there any way, and you guys might hate me for this, but uh, I, I don't care. <laughs> can you put it on 1.25 for two reasons? One, I'm having a little trouble following that speed. And for two, if our listeners want to go back and listen to this fast forward, I don't want them having to constantly speed up and slow down whenever he's talking. Say they put it on 1.5, he's talking mm -hmm. like 2.5, mm -hmm. and we're talking at regular speed. So if you could put it on 1.25, I think that would be a good split uh, for everyone. And so that looks good. Uh, and if nobody's got anything else, we can continue. I think we're good. Okay. Visible to the visible, moving from the, you know, the, let's say, from the invisible uh, or glory to the, or light into space. And of course, I think also moving from name into image. Um, and the idea in some of these polemical videos that the Christians at the early centuries had no concept of this at all. We're, we're not at all aware of any of the, at least the thrust of this movement, I think is, is a little dishonest. So I'm, I'm gonna read for you uh, a text, an apocryphal text. Uh, and it's an apocryphal text that is not in scripture. But it will, it's an apocryphal text that was written between the first and the third century. It's called The Life of Adam and Eve. And in this, you get a sense that at least the Christians and the late Jews had an understanding of what it is that was going on and the relationship between the fall of Adam and the second commandment. 
you know, it's like I, I, you always have to ask yourself, what is the second commandment for? What is its purpose? And so I'm going to read for you from the book of the life of Adam and Eve. And so now it is the, it's the devil speaking. The devil says, oh, Adam, all my hostility, envy, and sorrow is for thee, since it is for thee that I have been expelled from my glory, which I possessed in the heavens, in the midst of the angels, and for thee I was cast out in the earth. Adam answered, what dost thou tell me? What have I done to thee? Or what is my fault against thee, seeing that thou hast received no harm or injury from us? Why dost thou pursue us? The devil replied, O Adam, what dost thou tell me? It is for thy sake that I have been hurled from that place. When thou was formed, I was hurled out of the presence of God and banished from the company of the angels. When God blew into thee the breath of life, and thy face and likeness was made in the image of God, Michael also brought thee and made us worship thee in the sight of God. And God the Lord spake, Here is Adam. I have made thee in our image and likeness. And Michael went out and called all the angels saying, worship the image of God as the Lord God hath commanded. And Michael himself worshiped first. And he called me and said, worship the image of God. Worship the image of God, the Lord. And I answered, I have no need to worship Adam. And since Michael kept urging me to worship, I said to him, why dost thou urge me? I will not worship an inferior and younger being than I. I am his senior in the creation. Before he was made, I was already made. It is his duty to worship me. When the angels who were under me heard this, they refused to worship him. And Michael saith, worship the image of God. But if thou wilt not worship him, the Lord God will be wrath with thee. And I said, if he be wrath with me, I will set my seat above the stars of heaven and will be like the highest. Can we pause there? Of course, the oldest version of the fall of Satan. Not. Yeah, that's a great spot to stop right there yeah. for sure. The biggest um, thing I wanted to call out there is that um, I think he's using the term worship there because it's in the translation he's reading. Um, and I would love to know what uh, I'll have to look this up and see if I can find it. Um, what's actually in the original language there, because um, I don't think that we're going to see Pajot making an argument that people should, that this text is saying that people were called to worship Adam in the same way that we only worship God. Right. Uh, I think it would probably make, I'm, I'm guessing, again, I don't have the original text in front of me, original language in front of me, but um, it would probably fit something like the the distinction that you see within orth orthodox circles between um, worship and uh, veneration. Um, so this idea that we, we only worship God, we only, only provide sacrifices to him, uh, and in Christianity, that's the Eucharist, right? Um, we only only provide these those kinds of things to him where we can, you know, honor um, and and even you know bow down to other people in some sense, um, that's a different thing. So I don't, it's hard to say, um, but I, I just wanted to kind of call that out. And I also wanted to say, I think I, I actually want to study this text more <laughs> because um, I'm, I don't know the, the, re the reception history of this text and I don't really know the provenance of it. And so I'm a, I want to be a little bit careful with just saying, oh, of course we know that this is what this particular group of Christians or what most Christians thought at the time. Um, right. I don't think he's necessarily saying that, but he didn't really comment on, on the reception of it. And so um, it could be one of those things that feels a little bit like this is just one example that fits my, what I want to say. So I'm going to use it without necessarily going into some of the details. So that, that's, it would, yeah. It would be interesting to know whether he, you know, the, original if the greek was using the the word uh, dulia mm -hmm. versus latria 
And because exactly. um, yeah. I, I speak Greek and I can just tell you, even with modern Greek, dulia is the word dulia, which means work. And it's just a common word meaning work, but, you know, service, work, kind of same difference. Yeah. Latria, typically, you know, in, in modern Greek, when you would use that word, you would be like latrevo, to adore someone. And so uh, that, you know, kicks it into the worship category. Um, you serve the saints just as God told us to serve our fellow man, but it's a it's a heightened service because you know the common man, you know the run of the mill Joe Blow on the street uh, didn't necessarily die for their belief in God uh, or or do things like Mother Teresa did. Uh, you know, so these saints are worthy of much higher respect in the same way that we treat, um, you know, the judges or or pastors or priests with, uh, I mean, we, we treat everybody, or at least we should, with respect. But sometimes when people have um, achieved certain things, we give them a little bit of a heightened respect. And then like with the Virgin Mary, you know, that hyperdulia, that extra special show of respect um given you know how she was chosen god you know god chose to to have his incarnate self come through her so obviously she's pretty special you know to be the one chosen for that so but yeah it, it'd be curious i'd be curious blessed right yes yes to see you know which word might have been used there in the in the greek Teddy, I'm curious uh, also, and since you speak Greek, I would love to get your opinion on this. Um, there's also, between Dulia and Latreo, there is also a distinction that is made between proskuneo and Latreia, right? And I just want to get your opinion, because in Revelation, and, and I forget chapter and verse off the top of my head, but whenever we see uh, Jesus speaking to the church at Philadelphia, he, and this is Jesus speaking, which it blew my mind whenever I first saw this, but he says to the church at Philadelphia that I will have those who are of the synagogue of Satan, those who call themselves Jews, come and bow down at your feet. And the word there is proskuneo. And so I was just curious, what, um, it, it, what's the distinction uh, between those two words, proskuneo and latreia? Well, um, in, in that, the, the word you said, which is kind of the anglicized version of it um okay. but it's 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 a uh, naproskiniso which okay. is um you know commonly used uh still today and that is it and usually when you see that word it's it's I, i've always encountered it in the context of when you're in front of an icon how you're going to bow down to it mm -hmm. usually say a prayer and then kiss the icon. Mm -hmm. And that is the act of, uh, you know, to naproskinesis. Um, it, it's, a, it's a bowing, it's a showing of respect, a humbling of oneself in front of it. And, um, it, and every time, the only time I've ever kissed an icon or seem to recall in, ter in terms of the church, it's always, 
either Christ or, or um, the Madonna and child. Mm. But those are usually when you go into a Greek Orthodox church before, um, you know, fully going into where, where the service is held, you know, there are the icons and the candles, but the, the place where you go to, to Naproskinesis, that's always got Jesus and a lot of times his mother with him. Okay. Thank you for that. I appreciate sure. it. And, and, and the, the adoring part, you know, the La, La Trevo, um, it, I mean, there's a, there's a connection between it, but one, it but that's just more to adore. Whereas the Proskinesi is, is like a bowing and uh, a humbling and, that sort of thing. Okay. So, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it almost sounds like what you're saying is a difference between like an external act versus like an internal reverence. That's a, that's a, actually an excellent way of, um, of describing it, that it's an outward show <laughs> of your adoration. But I, I also want to say that I believe that you can, do the naproskinesis. Now I'm not positive about this, so, but I I'm fairly sure that you can do that also to a saint, in terms of showing high respect yet still not moving to the adoration. Right. Because obviously mm -hmm. the only person that you show adoration to is God, and it's like. You know, one of the things is that when we talk about Dulia and um, and Latria is you can show service to people. You can show service or that respect to saints and you can show service and respect to God. And so that can apply to all three of those situations. But with Latria, that is supposed to be reserved only for God himself. Gotcha. Another context for this, um, we're coming up on the on the beginning of Lent fairly soon, mm -hmm. and uh, one of the services in in the, in the church is is uh, there's a forgiveness vespers, and one of the things that that you do in in and there are different ways of doing this, but um, in our parish, what what we do is we basically have you know kind of a way of of doing this where you literally interact with every single other person in the church, mm. and you fully you know, bow before them and ask for their forgiveness. And then they say, I forgive and Christ forgives. And then they do that oh. back to you. Ooh, and it's wow. a way of like deeply honoring the image of God in each other. Um, in, in a way of, of basically saying, you know, like I need to be really, really thoughtful about how I treat people because they are made in the image of God. Mm -hmm. It's not an act of worship the way that we understand worshiping God, but it is an, a, a deep act of honor and, and respect. Uh, right. So, yeah, it's pretty and, and <laughs> very meaningful and powerful. Um, also, if you haven't done a lot of squats, kind of painful. <laughs> <laughs> Work out before this Vespers. Right? Yes, <laughs> we literally. Yeah, yeah, we are. <laughs> so one one additional thing just just on the linguistic front here is that uh, if we if we travel back even further into the Old Testament and the biblical usage of the Hebrew word for worship. Um, it's actually shakha, and it means bow down or prostrate oneself before a superior in homage or bowing before God in worship 
or used for bowing before a false god or even before an angel. Mm. And so it is really that 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 representational act of bowing, something that Peugeot is actually going to speak on in a moment here. Uh, so we should probably uh, head back to the video. But I just wanted to bring up also that even in the Old Testament, there was precedent for this idea of bowing before a superior, making yourself low to raise them up. Yes, uh, Josh, I was going to make that point. Um, there's an example that comes quickly to my mind when Abigail sees David and she falls mm -hmm. before him on her face in 1 mm -hmm. Samuel 25, 23. And it is Shakah there. And you can look at the lexicon and the way it's used and you you discover that it's it's also used when Abraham bows before the Lord, right? Um, right. And things like that. So it's the same Hebrew word. And um, of course, Abigail's not worshiping David as God. So it just right. shows you there's a range in the way that this word for worship is used. Um, and and also in the Old Testament, we have plenty of examples of people using um, religious uh, furniture or or holy objects um, as as objects that they they venerate or or bow before. Um, so like you, you got Joshua and Joshua 7, 6 bowing down before the Ark of the Covenant. Um, David instructs people to do that as well. Um, so anyway, it's not um, it's not foreign to the Bible to have people uh, bowing before other humans or holy objects. Um, but that doesn't right. mean that they're trying to extend full adoration or sacrifice yeah. to the Lord of hosts. Well, I mean, and just think about it when when uh, when a man proposes to a woman, a lot of times they get down on bended knee. I mean, right. they, you know, but they're not uh, saying, oh, you're, you know, God is although, you know, well, and I've seen Protestants <laughs> fall at the foot of the cross. Right. Uh -huh. It's not that different um, uh, to to bow before a, a cross um, than to bow to an icon. I, I see that that is very similar. Um yeah. So same principle, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To show respect. You know, you curtsy to the queen, you bow, you know. I mean, it's funny, uh, and not to be <laughs> not to be silly, but um the same people who will complain about uh bowing to icons will go to a football game and salute the American flag and have no problem with it, right? Because they realize they're not saluting the cloth, they're saluting what it represents. Um point. right. Yeah. Very good point. So who says this? Prostrating, kissing, bowing down constitutes idolatry. James White. Nope, Tertullian. Oh, <laughs> and James White. Um, mm -hmm. There's also a, a part in uh, Origins' discussion with Celsus that mm -hmm. I would like to bring up on this as well. Real it, quick, David, can you read that quote again from Tertullian? Uh, prostrating, kissing, bowing down constitutes idolatry. I saw that the other day, and I was wondering if you guys had a, a response to it. I couldn't find exactly. I, I didn't. Uh, I'm stupid because I didn't actually write down the 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 verse, but I did write down the one with Celsus and Origin that I wanted to get to because I yeah. think that um get back to Origin. Song, yeah, but Origin he uh he was fighting against Celsus. And when they were talking about bowing down and stuff like that, he makes a very strong claim that Christians are not to do that, that they should be beheaded before <laughs> they do stuff like that. And he ends up saying at the end of that, he says in 741, being taught in the school of Jesus Christ, 
having rejected all images and statues. So, I mean, I, it's kind of hard for me yeah. to kind of understand that. Um, but again, it's like yeah. people will kiss a photo of a loved one that they're missing. People will, um, gosh, people will, you know, come and leave in the country and then coming back to America, kiss the ground. You know? yeah. Uh, yeah. Can I, I respond? Go ahead, Teddy. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Oh, uh, but in, and um, and again, you know, with with uh, kneeling and bowing again, a marriage proposal. There's oftentimes that, or or people just uh, pleading with someone, or you know, with the being in front of the king or queen. It's not that you're thinking they are uh, a deity. It's just a, a, a sign of heightened respect. Yeah. I, I do think it makes sense mm. to say that doing that to anyone in the context of of the broader worship of an idol or false false god is something that you shouldn't do, right? So we no. see things like, you know, don't bow down before the, this idol that Nebuchadnezzar has set up, right? So there is a contextual aspect to it that I, I think it's lost on people sometimes when they when they read things and just think I have the rule I can follow it one way or the other. It's like, well, don't do that ever in the context of of idol idols and false gods and anything else. But you know, when we are talking about a, an interaction with other people that's in normal, or when we're talking about worship that you know involves God, it, it's different than that, right? What. One of the interesting things, though, in that um, wonderful debate between James White and Patrick Madrid, um, James White tries to create this um, false distinction, like uh, sometimes when you're showing respect to somebody, but it's not in a religious context. Mm -hmm. you know, so that's different. It's yeah. like, well, if you're going to show respect to a saint, Mm -hmm. What the saint yeah. did, the great thing that they accomplished was in religious context. So you can't remove that right. from the saint and what it is that you're trying to show respect um, about them. And in the Bible also, I don't remember what passage it was, but it talks about um, giving honor where honor is due. And they talk about the civil authorities and, and Romans 13. Okay, there yep. you go. And um, but but also on a heightened level, you know, saints and martyrs. And so it it's actually important, I think, that we we honor them. You know, you don't want to. What my big thing is, is that I think that sometimes some people get a little overzealous in how much they want to honor certain individuals that are not God mm -hmm. the you know the old saying if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it acts like a duck it's a duck and so I, I think that there needs to be this extra something this certain je ne sais quoi when we are praising and adoring God and, and have a very clear line of demarcation between everybody else, mm -hmm. including Mary. And, and you know, I, I place her above the saints, but I, I sometimes feel that sometimes it, it's coming a little too close to the line. And, and I, 
I, I respect her important position in the church, but I, I'm just personally not comfortable with there being a thin line. I like a big fat <laughs> line yeah. in yeah. terms well, of just how excited you get about, about God versus anybody else. And we're anticipating this this uh, discussion really well because Peugeot's about to go into oh, uh, some of the distinctions <laughs> here about bowing and its context and how we're, there are things that when when you bow, it's not a problem. But if you bow in the wrong way, it's definitely mm -hmm. a problem. Yeah. He's going to go into that in more detail. Real quick, yeah. before we before we move on to that, since we're quoting church fathers, I would just like to quote uh, St. Athanasius. And I do have the uh, statement from which he he said this, it's from the 39th question to Antiochus, I'm sorry, uh, page 94. Uh, St. Athanasius says this, quote, We the faithful do not worship the icons as gods by no means as the pagans. Rather, we are simply expressing our relation to and the feeling of our love toward the person whose image is depicted, depicted in the icon. Hence, frequently, when the image has faded, we burn it in fire, then as plain wood, that which previously was an icon. Just as Jacob, when dying, bowed in worship over the head of the staff of Joseph, confer Hebrews 11.21, not honoring the staff, but him to whom it belonged in the same manner of the faithful, for no other reason venerate or kiss the icons, just as we often kiss our children, so that we may plainly express the affection we feel in our soul. For it is just as the Jew once worshipped the tablets of the law and the two golden sculpted cherubim, not to honor the nature of the stone and gold, but the Lord who had given them. And mm -hmm. I say, end quote. And so I say that to keep in mind, and we have to keep this in its context, right? The reason that it might look funny to those who do not participate in the veneration of icons is because there might not seem to be a connection between the icon itself or the windows of heaven, as uh, the Orthodox call them, uh, to the person the person who is alive uh that that uh represents mm. and so again just to reiterate the point the person is not bowing down to paint and wood the person is honoring and reverencing the person the truly person who's in christ uh mm -hmm. behind that image and it, oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Um, i was just going to say that the in christ is the biggest thing there yeah right um because you right. know Technically speaking, you know, you talk about the Mesopotamians back in the day when they're doing mouth opening ceremonies and whatever with a, a block of wood that they've coated in gold. They're not really providing sacrifices specifically to that object. They believe that there's a spirit involved in that, too. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, the in Christ is the biggest thing here. I think that makes a difference is that if we're if we're talking about interacting with with something that's a representation of someone that's that is part of the body of Christ. And uh, it's a representation of someone that has gone before us, um, that is, as Hebrews 12 uh, talks about entering, you know, into heavenly worship, the festal gathering of angels, the church of the firstborn, and, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, right? These are people that have gone before us, they're, 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 they've been made perfect in the presence of, of God, they're part of the body of Christ, there is no separation between them and Christ, there is no, I'm going to go to this person and they're not connected to Christ, Right. That, I think, is the key distinction here that makes this even approachable for someone that, that calls themselves a Christian, as opposed to 
uh, something where it's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not bowing down to that idol either. I'm bowing down to the spirit that that's indwelling it. Right. That's a completely different thing. <laughs> like for example, one of the things where I'm doing a lot of work and research and I have tons of books on the shroud of Turin or really the shroud of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of them have, of course, uh, pictures of the Holy face on, on the book cover. And I've gotten to where, you know, now for about two years, I'm really big on being very careful where I put books or anything that has that holy face on it or a representation of Christ. Because, and it's not, you know, it's not the paper that I'm worshiping. It's not the ink on it. It's who, you know, so, some people, they almost have a childish impression of this. Oh, you're worshiping the book. You're worshiping the paper. No, I'm not worshiping the paper. I'm, 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 I'm worshiping who is on that. It's, 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 it's an image of somebody that's important, you know, all important to me. And so I, for example, I don't even like to put like, let's say if I have a book with the shroud, with the shroud on it, you know, I don't want to put something else. I've got this weird rule in my head where only another book or something else with Christ's face can be stacked on top of another book or, or just, you know, cause it's the same thing, but it's like, I, I, I wouldn't want to put, you know, like a box of shoes on top of a book with, with the holy face on it. That just seems like the height of disrespect to me. And that's what it is. It's respecting who is on that. In the same way that to any red-blooded American, to see somebody other than retiring a flag in an honorable way by burning it, that somebody burning a flag in disrespect in the same way that that would just infuriate us and it would be seen as as the height of disrespect that's it's the same same principle and and it and it's actually started to get me thinking about how we should people should be very careful with what they put the image of god on because of how it might be handled it's like the the, the deeper you think about it for example i have these postcards that they're lenticular postcards and they have the face, uh, the holy face on them from the shroud. But it also, there was this um, artist who took the shroud face and filled it in. So you basically see a portrait and it is so, it's such a magical because depending on how you move it, you can see the face on the shroud versus what it looks like just all fleshed out. And, um, and, but it's a postcard. And then one day I started thinking, gosh, I can't imagine this being tossed in a postmaster's bag or in, and just, you know, at the post office and being stamped and, and people, you know, whatever with it, it, it treating it in a disrespectful way. I started thinking, well, you know, people need to be careful what they put crosses and, images sacred images like that onto because you don't want them just being treated casually because of who is on there not because of what the thing is right on 
that's a good word. Um, I wanted to say one quick thing that kind of tied into what uh, Josh Sherman was just saying uh, about the importance to remember we're talking about people who are in Christ when we're showing respect and, and um, honor to them. And I thought about Matthew 25 and how Jesus is talking about when we serve the least of the brothers and sisters in the church, we're serving him, right? He says that straight up. When you mm -hmm. did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Now he's talking about the church there. He's talking about serving the, the brethren. Um, and so if, if an act of service saying visiting uh, someone who's sick in the church um, or visiting someone who's imprisoned in the church, if doing that act of service to someone is doing it under Christ um, sort of by extension, then I think that showing honor and respect to them is also showing honor and respect to Christ by extension. Mm -hmm. And and then there's there's the beautiful mm -hmm. metaphor in Scripture that you get really from start to finish of uh, the church in Israel being the, the very bride of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm a married man, and I know that when somebody respects my wife, I feel respected at the same time. And so when we show respect to members of the church, I'm certain that Jesus, as the as the bridegroom, he must feel respected too, because it, it feels good to see your bride respected. So I kind of like that uh, that imagery of the, the church being the bride of Christ. Um, you're loving the husband when you love his wife. Amen. That's awesome. Right on. Well, I think we're ready to hop back in, Dale. Of falling before the creation of humans, not before, not falling, you know, in this ancient, ancient way uh, that is described uh, in more recent texts, but falling because he did not agree to bow down to the image that God had put of himself in the world in Adam. Let's say the late Hebrews and the early Christians they had a sense that there was a direct relationship between the notion of the image in the fall of Adam and the notion of the image in the second commandment. I do believe so. And that, and also not just that, but the movement in the revelation of how the son of man appears sitting on a throne next to God. Now, of course, this will be come to be fully kind of revealed in the person of Christ as being the image of the son of man, of this restoration of the, of the, of the image of God in man and the restoration of the place of man sitting on the throne next to God uh, in the person of Christ. And, and the early Christian artists knew this very, very well. And so some of the very first, uh, some of the earliest art that still, let's say, survives iconoclasm, uh, in it you will see that this is what they are representing. So this is an image of the ascension of Christ from the Rabula gospel, which is a Syrian uh, gospel from the sixth century. And so in this image, you see the Christ as exact, it's the ascension, but it's the ascension represented as Christ being the son of man, Christ being on the chariot of the, of the uh, cherubim, you know, represented in this particular way with the four heads and the wheels and the eyes, and that this is the restoration. This is the full revelation of what is being hinted at, of what is being suggested in the book of Daniel and in the book of Ezekiel. And so the idea that it might have taken Christians time to fully understand the scope of what the story of Christ was bringing, of what the incarnation, the consequences of the incarnation for us is something that I can, I can understand, you know, and, and I think that pushing very hard to act as if the early fathers of the church were completely aware and hadn't totally, you know, dealt with what was, what the relationship between 
what the consequences of all the consequences of the incarnation of Christ were. I am okay with accepting that, but it doesn't change the thrust of what is happening. And so it's interesting because in, you know, in some of the polemic videos, there's this sense that there is no difference between veneration and worship, that there is no difference of levels. Can we pause there for a sec? Bowing down. Um, so I, I think that's really key as well. Uh, and, and one of the things that, that we see um, is this, the sense of like, the relationship between the second commandment, right, images and the image of God. I think we also see um, a, a correlative relationship uh, when we're talking about glory, right? Because glory is something that's connected in with imaging languages. If you, if you, you know, do any kind of study on the image of God and glory, like they're very much intertwined. And um, one of the things that I think is interesting is is that you have very much kind of this idea of the, this consistency of you know if you take the reform position on the second commandment you also are you're all almost always going to hear something very quickly about things like you know uh, I am Yahweh I, I do not share my glory with another right from Isaiah and that's true right God says that that's true but then later on you have John or in in John seventeen you have Jesus saying I have shared the glory that you shared with me, with them, with his disciples. So you have God incarnate sharing the glory that God in heaven, <laughs> God the Father in heaven has shared with him, with his disciples. Something fundamentally has changed about the equation oh. with the incarnation that it relates to the image of God, that relates to glory, that makes that possible, even though Isaiah, what Isaiah said is still true, right? Um, so that's just a very interesting thing to me. And uh, I really like the way that he also then approached the fact that, you know, I don't think we need to see necessarily see everyone fully understanding the implications of this right away. I think what we probably see more is a something where as the church continues to grow and as you see essentially the retreat of paganism, where they're not having to argue as much about don't bow down before that statue of Zeus because no one takes Zeus seriously anymore then you start to see a more of a transition into things um, where, where you see more, more support for and, and more talk about, um, you know, icons and, and veneration in the church. And that, and that kind of leads us into where we see uh, things happening with Nicaea too, as a reaction to iconoclasm, which was a reaction to the invasion of, of Islam into, into Christendom. Right. Um, so all of that is connected. And I think it's very helpful to understand that, that a lot of this is part of a story that moves places. And if we understand the places where it pivots and where it goes to, it helps us to understand where to orient when we're looking at things like the second commandment, when we're looking at things like, I will not share my glory with another. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I was, I was going to say something similar. Like I don't see really this whole idea of like icons coming up till after three thirteen. you know? Um, and, th and this is just from studying church history too. Uh, I was looking at this one book, uh, and it was probably about a week ago now, but it says, uh, I wrote this down. It says, there's little support of, of cult sacred images in pre-icon class Byzantine. Uh, the textual and material evidence agree that sacred portraits existed, but there is no indication that these images received special veneration in any consent uh, or any in any con consistent fashion before the late 7th century. And that's... Uh, Byzantinium in the iconoclast error, which I thought was, uh, you know, kind of revealing there. Um, hmm. So, yeah, I would, yeah, I, I think uh, as like 
the whole idea of those paganism died down is when you you see this come to to a different thing but i i often wonder it is it kind of like what the pagans used to do and the gnostics did it i mean you had a what was it eusebius he was getting on to uh um mm -hmm. uh, what is it no 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 he wasn't no eusebius he was he had he had confiscated two pictures of paul and uh and uh um peter because they were dressed like philosophers like greek philosophers <laughs> and he was like dude this is what the pagans do they 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 dress them up and you know they then they start venerating them in, in this way and it turns into idolatry and i think that that's what was the scare and i think that's mm -hmm. what scared uh everybody in in that time oh. you know um and even uh you know i mean we quoted athanasius and i i'm, I'm not even sure i because this this stuff was just coming around and if i think you look deeper into the text i don't think he's talking about icons more than he's talking about you know jesus being in the image of god and then he goes on to say in that same uh uh discourse to the arians i think it was tyler you might know it better better than me athanasius is one of my favorite guys man i mean dude got exiled five times he was short so he could hide places where people <laughs> couldn't find him uh yeah it was so yeah. funny he, like he was like he was escaping from these Aryans on a boat one time yes and, i was and, gonna bring that story up yeah dude, i love that he, he hit it like into like some some linen or something he was so short he could fit right in the linen they just like passed right by him man the, the, I don't, there's a, yeah. a story of him literally of them saying, you know, we're looking for Athanasius or, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, he's right ahead of you. And they just kept going. Yeah. <laughs> I, so real quick, David, I just want to respond yeah. to what you said about Athanasius talking about. And you think he might be talking about the image of God. Is that correct? But um, hold on. Let me. Let or me. how did you refer? How did you phrase <sighs> that? I don't want to misquote you. Um, I think Athanasius is talking about the likeness of Jesus to the Father and not of like icons. So, so uh, the example that that I think occurs to Athanasius to use is a secular one because he he specifically says later on for the likeness of the emperor in the image is exact, so that a person who looks at the image sees in the emperor, and he again who sees the emperor recognizes that it is he who is in the image so i mean he's using a secular one because i don't think christians at that time had a lot of they, they didn't have icons so i th that's that's all i was saying so how into it. so are you so are you accusing athanasius of burning people when their image fades no no i had nothing to do with that i i think he's just using a, a secular i don't think he's uh using uh icons basically i don't think he's like talking about icons in general um, I think he's trying to relate like a, another thing. If you continue reading on um, what he says in that, he says, and on hearing the attributes of the father spoken of a son, we shall thereby see the father and the son for he who is, who is in this sense understands that the son and the father are one knows that he is in the father and the father and the son for the Godhead of the son is the father's and it is in the son. And whoever enters into this is convinced that he that has seen the son has seen the father and it goes on and it goes on and, and then um and what's that from? at the end uh i think it's the discourse against the arians right I, so we're quoting two different sources no i'm quoting the 39 oh i thought you were quoting that was so yeah it's a totally different one then i i thought it was against the I, I thought that was the first part of against uh our discourse against the arians my bad no no you're no you're no. good 
Let you know what, Tyler? Actually, what, what David just read brought to mind uh, a yeah. conversation that you and I have had mm -hmm. a couple of times in the past about um, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And you and I, after quite a few times deliberating about that and, and, and really understanding uh, the, our, our place in the body of Christ, uh, is, is to say that if to be able to say as someone who is in Christ, if you've seen me, you've seen the spirit in some real sense and how yeah. relevant that that can be to this conversation about uh, icons, particularly of saints, uh, as well as, uh, you know, things mm -hmm. like the shroud or uh, an, an icon of Christ on the ceiling of a dome of a church or something like that. Um, see, seeing that these things uh, are, are references for your senses to perceive something that you're that, that otherwise would be wholly irrelevant to your senses. Because when I look at you, I don't see a soul. I see a mm -hmm. face. And yet that face <laughs> is the symbol that animates the soul to me. Otherwise, I have no way to interact with it. And so yeah, um, that that actually brought to mind. I, I think that's relevant to the conversation. But before yeah. we go to before we get too far into that whole thing, I just want to, uh, yeah. um, you know, bring up that we're at about an hour and a half and we're right about three quarters of the way through this video. Uh, and it would be really cool <laughs> I, if we were able to finish it. I'll, yeah, I'll save I'll my shut comments. Up. Yeah, no, I'll just I, I'll, I may have to, to head out pretty quickly here. Uh, one of my kids is not feeling well again, but um, I just wanted to tie in real quick to that. What you just said. Um, and then this would be my closing thoughts if I if I'm if I have to leave. Um, I think one of the things that we see if we connect the image of God, we connect the incarnation, we connect the body of Christ, and we connect the the uh, essentially the celebration of salvation in Christ of of theosis, right? Um, I think that's why veneration of the saints and veneration of icons of the saints made sense to people as time went on, because I think what they're seeing is as I'm honoring this other person that's gone before me in the faith, as I am um, celebrating who they are, I'm also celebrating the ways in which they have been made like God through Christ to whatever extent that's possible for humans to do. Right. Um, something that, that, that happens uh, as Athanasius puts it, um, by grace, uh, you know, we, we become by grace what God is by nature. So there's very much a difference between God and any anything or anyone else. Um, but there is some sense in which we, we become more like God through this process. And to to venerate an icon, to honor a saint, is in some ways to celebrate the fact that we have this so great a salvation in Christ, right? Um, and that is just something that I... I, I that's where this kind of a thing, when, when you get people that, that start to, to almost connect this into the gospel, the way that I, th I think we see it, and I see it too, I can see why they think that, right? Obviously, you know, I'm not there. I wasn't there. Um, you know, I don't know if I would go as far as some people did. That's not my call. I'm not, a, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, but I can understand why this connects into the hope that we have in such a meaningful way uh, when you connect these concepts of the image of God, the incarnation, the body of Christ, and theosis and salvation. Yeah, and I've tried to be really quiet about this the entire time, and I know we want to keep playing the video, so I apologize. But, man, <laughs> Josh, he really stole the thunder, and he did better than me right before he asked to leave. Um, but, no, theosis is the hugest component of this. And... Um, many Protestants, it, it would be like living in America your entire life and then going to Zimbabwe and just not understanding their way of life at all and then trying to say that they're wrong. Well, theosis is a prominently lost um, doctrine in the evangelical world 
Um, the Orthodox hold to it the strongest. But yes, if we look at an icon, even in our room that we buy of the Apostle Paul, we're looking at someone who has reached uh, glorification. They become a partaker in the divine nature because they've made their running and election sure and they finished their race. Now they're in the presence of God and the, the image of God that Christ in his incarnation um, sacrifice and resurrection sought to restore. They are enjoying that now. So it, veneration in the sense of, okay, this is someone who was made in, in the image of God, but stained with sin. Like I am now, it gives me someone, it gives me something to look forward to. That that's yes. something that I can also achieve. Not that we are esteeming any of the apostles or any of the church fathers on the same level as Christ, but look what Christ has accomplished in their life. And that is an aid to true worship of, of, of Jesus. Hallelujah. Garrett will be pleased about what you just said. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think, I think we're ready to hop back in there, uh, Dale. Uh, and worshiping God in the sense of acknowledging, you know, God as being the highest and being the source of all things. And I think that that is, that's a dishonest take. You know, there are many images of, uh, let's say, the relationship, uh, an honorable relationship towards mediation in scripture. You know, uh, there is, of course, the, the image of Joshua who bow down before, bow, uh, bows down before the uh, Ark of the Covenant. You know, you have images different places where people bow down to each other. And so the idea that people couldn't distinguish bowing down before something to honor it, to see in it a vehicle, let's say, of God's, of God's grace or God's presence, and then the, the, the absolute worship of God himself, I think that is, that's a dishonest statement. Uh, you know, people did bow down before kings, bow down before all these things. And, you know, bow, and the idea that there's no relationship at all, like bowing down before a king, you know, is not connected in any way to bowing down before other things. It's, it's ridiculous. It really is an understanding of power, an understanding of authority, an understanding of something which is, at least it is showing us how the authority of God works with us. It's a mediated version of God's, uh, God's authority on us. Uh, the idea that we would be willing to bow down to that is completely normal in, in the Old Testament. Uh, and so I don't, see that, I don't see that that's an honest argument to say that there's no distinction between the two. Um, and the best example of that is actually not in the physical bowing down, but it is in the way that the people in the Old Testament praise the name of God. And so it's very interesting, right? Uh, you see so many examples of it, right? In uh, Nehemiah 9, 5, 6, stand up and praise the Lord your God, uh, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. It may be exalted above all blessings and praise. Uh, of course, in the Psalms, there are so many versions of this. Um, and it's interesting because in Psalm 99, there's a version of it. Uh, and uh, we can look at it because it's fascinating. It says, the Lord reigns, the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. And so it's insane that he sits enthroned between the cherubim, the glory of God on the Ark of the Covenant, right? Great is the Lord in Zion. He's exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity in Jacob. You have done what is just and right. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. And so it's fascinating because in one of the polemical videos, uh, there's trying to deconstruct this as if this is not suggesting that people are worshiping in front of the Ark of the Covenant or that the Ark of the Covenant is in some ways the place that you bow down, that you, that you are, let's say, relating to in order to uh, worship God. But then just, you know, 
two, 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 two uh, verses up, you see that there is a, a relationship to that mediation because he's saying, praise your great and awesome name. And then after that, he says, exalt the Lord and worship at his footstool. And so both of those examples are examples of praising and elevating and, and, and bring, and let's say, uh, acknowledging, and you could use the word venerating, that's totally fine, the, the, the mediations that God gives us uh, that reveal him to us. And so it's important that you be able to tell the difference unless you think that the, that the Israelites worship the name of God in the same way that they worship God himself. And I don't think that is fully, that is acceptable in any way. And so the reason why they're able to worship at the footstool, the reason why they're able to praise the holy name is that these are mediations that God has given to them himself. And so because God has given this, 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 uh, revelation of him, we uh, we celebrate, we venerate, we raise up these these uh, these mediations, um, because th it's the, by these mediations that we're able to encounter God in the world. So now you would say that's not true of images, and the answer is you're right. Not in the Old Testament, for sure. That's not true. But why? Why is it not true? Why is it not possible? God made an image of Himself in the Garden of Eden. Why can we not venerate? the image of God, the way that we venerate the name of God, the way that we venerate the Ark of the Covenant, it is because God is working to restore that image in us, you know, and there are already hints of that, right? I think there are hints of that already in the, in the Bible, where you see uh, people bowing down before each other. It's not totally clear, like there are different reasons why you bow down, but nonetheless, the, whatever reason it is, the lowering of yourself in front of someone else has a structural relationship. You're lowering yourself and you're raising up someone else. When you lower yourself, you're raising up someone else. So there's no difference between praising the holy name and bowing down before something. Those are the same thing. They're both making yourself lower in relationship to something. So they're, they're just the same thing. Um, so the answer to that is that God gives us an image of himself. God restores the image in Christ. And so the image becomes a place of revelation of God. And not only would I go say that, but I would say that the reason for the second commandment, the spiritual reason for the second commandment is a promise that God will give us an image of himself, that God will restore the image of himself that has been tarnished and broken at the fall. And that is Christ. So the image becomes a mode, just like the name becomes a mode of revelation and people will get caught up in the technicalities of it. Like people will say, well, we don't really know what Jesus looked like. So you can't really represent him, uh, blah, 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 blah. Like this is irrelevant. This is irrelevant for the same reason you can say, well, you didn't hear the name of God in your ear when God said it. So you don't really know how to pronounce it. And so you shouldn't be, uh, you know, you shouldn't in any ways think that you have access to the name of God. Uh, it is a question of mode. And so when we praise the name of Jesus, we know that the way we say Jesus is not the same way that it was said in the first century. Uh, and that's okay. You know, that's not the point is not to be, to be, to be completely technically accurate. Obviously you can't, I mean, there's a, there's a range, right? There's a range of recognizability. You can't decide that the name of Jesus is Oscar and then praise the name of Oscar, but it also it isn't about just about being technically accurate. The same thing is for the image. We have a, a way to recognize the image of Christ. We have a, a way that has been, that has been fostered and received in the church of recognizing the image of Christ. And we see the image of Christ as a mode of revelation of God. And this, this is something that we should be, that I, it's like I said, I understand why it took time for the Christians to see that, but it's something that we should be rejoicing of because it is a proof of the restoration of what it's a, it's an arc that starts in Genesis and moves all the way 
into Revelation as, you know, the, the image of the holy city, which comes down from heaven, the space which is filled with the glory of God, you know, then now the image of the son of man sitting on a throne that you find in Revelation, you know, is another version of that, is another version of the fully, the filling of the presence of God in the world. And so, I mean, that's mostly what I wanted to help you understand is that if you, I understand people getting caught up uh, in the, the in reading the source text and looking at what this or that church father said or didn't say, where the hold and where the proof. Like, that's fine. Some people need to do that. But I think that the I think that the argument uh, is made much far more deeply from the very thrust of what revelation is and from the very thrust of the entire narrative of of scripture. And so, you know, as Orthodox Christian, we see just like we see in the name of Jesus and in the name of God, a, a place where God has revealed himself to us. And so we, we praise the name of Christ. We, we praise the name of God. Uh, and we also see in the image a place that God has revealed himself. And that, that, that revelation is a, is a fulfillment, I think. It's a fulfillment of a great story which starts at the beginning uh, in Genesis. So I hope this has been useful. And I know it won't convince people that, that are looking you know, to... That, that have a kind of, let's say, a technical way of reading that want to just see the proof text and the source text and, and, like, and try to, to encode it that way. Uh, and all I would ask you to do is to maybe pull out a little bit and ask yourself the bigger questions, the bigger questions of what is the thrust of the entire story. So I hope this was helpful to at least some of you. Uh, thank you for your attention and uh, talk to you very soon. Definitely helpful. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, so that... Now that we finish the rest of the video, our, our our discussion can flow more freely without the the feeling that we're going to be uh, taking away from the 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 flow of the the actual presentation. Um, as for the uh, the the overall content of that video, um, I I hope nobody's disappointed by the fact that I mean he was forthcoming from it from the beginning that he's not a scholar, he's not a historian, he's an iconographer. He's an Orthodox Christian. So this is part of his practice and he's explaining it from that point of view. Um, and so I, I feel like what he did was a really great way of opening the door for a better discussion that doesn't center around you're, you're a heretic or you're, you know, some, some other kind of pejorative name and making these off the top, uh, you know, irreconcilable kind of positions that nobody's really hearing one another anymore. Uh, and that's something that I'm really proud of what we're doing here on Faith Unaltered is actually being able to pre present uh, difficult topics in a way that we can hear one another and we're listening carefully. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about the way that this conversation has been so far, but uh, I guess we're opening up the, uh, the floor for, for uh, the, the last bit here to yeah. kind of really hash out the, the, the differences that we're, we're, we're seeing here having discussed this. I like the way that he closed it out with the, the uh, commandment against not making images of God is a promise, uh, future, future tense, of restoring uh, a rightful image uh, in its proper place. Not that we get to fabricate one. Uh, we, we don't fabricate one. God provides his own. Um, that, that I think is actually a really interesting point that I hadn't considered before watching this video. And he did. Hey, I, I got I do, I have a question and this is for the panel of, um, you know, uh, mainly for you, Josh, I, I wanted to uh, get your opinion on this is, uh, okay. the anathema sayings that occurred at Nicaea too. 
Um, and they're kind of scary. I mean, would, you know, um, it, it, it's it's just scary. I, I can't you know put it in any other way. Um, what do you think about those anathema sayings? And, and it, because w- when I listen to Peugeot and guys, the Peugeot brothers, I mean, me and Josh have talked about it, and you know, I even got Matthew Peugeot's book. You know, um, it, very awesome book. Uh, they have they 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 write in a way both of them can explain things and write in a way that really provoke your thoughts um so just that off the but what do you do you think about the anathema sayings uh that came from that because historically we know that um anathema is separation from god you know so you know what it is now i mean i can read you a andrew shakes his head i can actually read you a quote from uh a uh a historical quote from uh, that time period of what an anathema is, uh, but what it's what it is now might be totally different, and the way Jonathan describes it is uh, uh, different. And has the East evolved uh, away from what it used to be? Because you know, if you don't do it, anathema. If you don't kiss it, anathema. You know, I mean, it does. Are you talking it, about the? Yeah. Are you talking about the way that the Orthodox? Uh, that 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 there's a stance that without the the, the veneration of icons yeah. is associative with the process of salvation. We, yeah, yeah, about? exactly. If if you don't venerate those icons, anathema, you are separated from God. I don't know how much I agree with that. I and I'm I'm not so sure. I uh... yeah, and this is who, who wrote this. Yeah, I mean, I think that it that they are oh yeah this is from price he he quotes uh one of the head bishops of uh of the orthodox church uh says an anathema is a terrible thing it drives its victims far from god and expels them from the kingdom of heaven carrying them off into outer darkness i mean that's scary man so i just wanted i wanted to see uh um what your take was on that well, I don't have a, like a doctrinal stance or a, or or you know a rebuttal for it because I don't actually I'm not a catechumen in the in the Eastern Church, uh, so I don't have anything I don't have the resource available to give a better answer. I saw a discussion earlier this week that covered similar topics, uh, but I would I would probably be amiss to just quote somebody else and say yeah this is what I think. Like I I I personally am somebody who has a tendency to be more ecumenical and more accepting of people given the the kind of fluid nature of what it means to follow Christ in terms of how I understand that I've been brought up in it uh, but I can see the way that the the closed edges of a formalized and liturgical church like the Eastern model even the way they they, they structure their buildings uh, is is very much so we're on the inside and there's an outside it's built to be very much like the ark right Um those who didn't board the ark were separated and and separated by the literal wood of the ark there was an inside and an outside and so to them uh the the church building itself represents something like the ark that which is on the outside is the chaos of the flood waters that which is on the inside is the sacred space that they inhabit of salvation and 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 participation in that divine life and so to me it makes sense that they would want to articulate it that way um i don't know that i have uh, a better way to explain it than than 
um, the the fact that their their emphasis is largely on participation rather than uh, formalized, you know, uh, propositional statements of affirmation about how this thing, this thing I say, I check off my yes to each of these boxes and therefore I'm a Christian. Um, they, they really don't have that way of looking at things. And so it's fundamentally different. And so I think the, I, I don't have, you know, I, I don't have the counsel in front of me to read off any of the anathemas specifically, but I think I know what you're talking about, which is this, like, like you said, it's tied to the salvation, a separation from God uh, is, is spoken of in a separation from the, uh, the ritual participation with the church. And so it makes sense to me. It would be like for a Protestant, if you said Jesus is a good idea and they would say, no, that you, that doesn't cut it. Right. Um, and so th those, those hard lines are necessary, I think, in order to do, to, to, to draw boundaries around something. Cause there is a boundary around it. There are ideas that if they're, if they're posited, it's like, okay, now you're outside of the camp of what we call Christian. Right. And it doesn't seem to me that the Eastern Orthodox uh, are, are as accepting of what we would, what we've learned from Lewis to call mere Christianity. Um, there, there's a lot more to it involved for them, I think. Uh, and so I, not being somebody who's in that church, I don't really have a better answer than I get it, but I don't necessarily agree. Yeah. I, uh, I spent a lot of time talking to Tyler about this very question um, mm -hmm. throughout the week, David, because it is it is a very uh, like you said, I think you're right. It's a scary idea that if you're not in the Orthodox Church, um, you're not saved. Right. Like that's a that's a scary teaching. Um, the Catholic Church had that. I would teaching. say it's an anathema. No, it's yeah. Yeah. No. The Catholic Church um, had that yeah. teaching as well um, for, for quite a while. And, and there's actually several Protestant denominations that have that teaching. Um, I think I think Hardcore Church of Christ have language like that sometimes. So, um, but I've been really doing a lot of thought to Sola Scriptura and what is the, uh, what is the, level of authority of the church and is the church infallible when it speaks from an ecumenical council, these kind of things. And um, I, I think ultimately we all, you know, all of us take some tradition to be the highest authority tradition. Uh, I think even people that say they're staunch sola scriptura, whether they realize it or not, they're going to be appealing to somebody's tradition. And an example would be even a reformed person who says I'm sola scriptura. Well, one of them is going to go with Calvin's view of the Lord's Supper. One's going to go with Zwingli's view of the Lord's Supper. And one's going to go to Luther's view of the Lord's Supper. And those are three different views of the Lord's Supper. Um, and as they say, sola scriptura and clarity of scripture, ultimately they're going to say, well, I agree with Luther on the Lord's Supper. So they're taking somebody's tradition. Um, and so the question is, which tradition is uh, the most accurate? Um, which one is the most authoritative? I think that's a journey that each of us has to go on personally and um, and and try our best to sort out. Uh, I certainly want to hold the ecumenical councils in very high regard, um, and and I want to I want to think that the church is shepherded perfectly by Christ when she makes you know ecumenical statements. Uh, we talk about Christ as a perfect savior. I like to talk also about him being a perfect shepherd, like he will lead his church into all truth. Um, but before we get scared by the idea of, well, I need to be kissing icons, this is why I made that big point at the beginning, that if we expand our understanding of what an icon is from just um, an image that's been carved or painted, 
and we expand it to the saints, right? And humans walking the earth right now. Well, then you, David, have have shown respect and honor to many uh, images of image bearers of God, right? And and little icons of God. Every time you um, submit to the authority of your elder at your local church, you know, that's a way of, of um, showing honor to a mini yeah, icon. I'm, I'm new to, so, man. I'm new to everything. Say that again. I'm new to everything. Well, well I guess I guess what I'm, I'm what I'm trying to say is what I'm trying to say is if if you have a mother who's a believer and you go and kiss her on the cheek, you're kissing a mini icon of God, right? So I think that we can expand Nicaea too might might uh, the the people who ran that council might say I'm taking it in places they didn't intend for me to take it. But I'm trying to say what if we expand our understanding of iconography beyond just pictures and carvings on a wall of an Orthodox church, mm-hmm. then not, then all of us are abiding by its teaching every time we show respect and honor to each other in the church, every time we... Because we all have God. So evolve in a certain... We have to evolve in a certain way, I guess. Um, I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't well, everybody has their, evolve, um, but everybody I would has their expand own our, expanding yeah. our understanding of what iconography is. It's more than just carved images. It's also you and I. It's uh, Christ is the icon of all icons, but we are also image bearers of God. Um, so like if I if I show respect to you, um, then I'm then I'm showing respect to uh, a mini icon. So I'm just trying to reframe the way we, we think about icons to expand it. beyond. Yeah, it, uh, yeah it, it seems kind of like an evolved sense of what what that, that that's all i meant by yeah. that was was you know how i feel about that word you know like, like you know <laughs> you know all. we like uh <laughs> you know it's like like me i like wearing a prayer shawl you know it's, yeah. it's my own thing i, I wear a prayer shawl it, it helps me not be distracted and you know get alone time i like i like zizits i i think they're they're great to have you remind yourself of the 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 command to love, you know, and, you know, reminds me of what Christ did to me in the four, take it, take that message to the four corners of creation, you know, but yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's as Christians, we can do that. I think we have the freedom. You you liked, you you said you liked the zitzits, the, the tassels that you had, the prayer tassels that you had, you know, you hang uh, down uh, on, on your, uh, the bottom of your shirts. And stuff like that, you know. I have I have some of those, you know. They remind me, and it, it, they remind me just like somebody would, you know, be reminded of what an icon is and the symbolism that is involved with that. I I, I have a fear of taking it too far, uh, just like I, I, you know. And I think that's what the the iconoclast struggled with was the fact that it was being taken too far by maybe some, and and others weren't i mean obviously the woman ran her son through (laughs) i mean that was that's that's pretty rough stuff man but uh but yeah it it just it you know i i get i get scared not scared i don't want to say scared i get hesitant when we start uh um not being graceful i guess i i I, when we start you know drawing hard lines Drawn, yes, exactly, Josh. Hard lines. When I think that the grace of God and just who Jesus is is something that's free, open. Um, of course, there's there's obviously are some hard lines, um, but right. I think that we, I, I think we add too many. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, just my opinion. You know, one of the things when you talk about what 
I, I just want to say I gotta go. Um, I'm being love told you, Dane. It's, it's bedtime for my babies. I gotta go help them put put them to bed. I love you all. This has been a lot of fun. Um, God bless you and kiss icons if you want to, and don't do it if you don't want to. <laughs> love you, Dane. Dane's number one. Love you, Dane. Be good, bud. <laughs> What I was going to say real quick, David, in relation to like shaking my head about the anathemas, um, it, it is a scary thing for us to be looking from the outside in and see that was the severity of what came out of the council. Um, the reason, so it, an anathema is only applicable in so much as you are already a part of that church and would fail to assent to the council. So you and I that are not orthodox or um you know the catholic and orthodox church were one at the time of this council um you know if we put ourselves in that perspective if we were protestants in their time it's not going to have so much of a weight on us because we don't belong to that body that they're issuing issuing the threat of anathema towards but it does give us something to consider that if we did want to um be received into the church and assent to their views that they are the one true church, that this is something that would bind our conscience. Yeah. You know, and you know, you know, one thing I just wanted to insert there because I, you know, I agree with you. Um, I think that that makes a lot of sense, Andrew. Uh, but one thing is, is though, you know, yeah, we're part of a, we're part, we should be part of one body in a sense, you know, we might have different branches and stuff like that. I don't, you know, we might laugh that some traditions just pop up, you know, last minute. But however, like, honestly, they all come from a central core. You know what I mean? Uh, they just express themselves in different ways. Um, but I, I don't think Teddy would take communion with me. If she's Greek Orthodox and I'm not. Would you take communion with me, Teddy? You mean in a non-Orthodox church? No, if if we're just chilling. <laughs> even you know we want to remember christ you know um and well i mean a greek orthodox yeah. we have a very specific idea i know, I know. exactly exactly so, i mean there's community you know because you know we see polycarp we saw polycarp in the early church and uh you know everything's just forming so you know i'm not using this as a a one-all be-all but you know we see him and and um Antichus, I think his name was Antichus, uh, the head bishop of Rome, where they got their, you know, they had their disagreements and their separations and stuff like that. And you see Barnabas and Paul having their separations, you know, uh, and we see these these different branches. I mean, we wouldn't have the Gospel of Mark if if Paul and Barnabas didn't split, you know. Um, but they broke bread together. Polycarp broke bread with they had the Lord's supper together, you know, and it's just like, why do we push ourselves that far away from each other? You know, I don't know. each other. It's just the, <laughs> in the, in the Orthodox church and, and with, with Catholics too. Um, I think our views are very much in line with each other. You don't just have communion. A, a, a priest has to, to do certain things in order for, because remember, Orthodox and Catholics, we believe that that, that bread and that wine, mm -hmm. it okay, no, chemically has it transitioned into flesh and blood? Right. No. Yeah, 
but it's it's not just for the Catholics. It is <laughs> not for the Orthodox. No, 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 no. It, it, the Catholics and the Orthodox are the exact same on this. No, like the um, you know some of the others are not, but but for the Catholics and the Orthodox, we believe the same thing that the the it it the bread and the wine turn into the body and blood of Christ. Now it is not the physically on a physical level. It has not changed chemically, but it has on a spiritual level. And there's, I think, some better word that describes it, but it has changed. And so when you consume it, something has happened. You know, you right. have consumed not just something that is symbolic. And, and I'll tell you, for the people that doubt this, and, and I, I mean, I've never even, it's embarrassing to say, but, and maybe it's just something that's more of a Catholic thing. I had never heard of it, people talking about it in the Greek Orthodox Church, but Eucharistic miracles. I was like, what's that? And I had to, I had to look it up. And, um, but holy mackerel, when you start looking you know, so for people who question whether something miraculous and spiritual actually occurs during communion, I invite you to do some research on Eucharistic miracles. And there are a number of them that have been studied by professional scientists, chemists, doctors, and and they are seeing um, basically, you know, it's blood. Uh, for example, sometimes on a uh, on a piece of um, bread that during communion may have fallen to the ground, and then they wipe it up with a with a uh, a linen cloth. Actually, my my editor uh, Julia Fonti, he has he's studied those, and he has. There are pictures that he's got that have been published um, where he's studying them. And, and you can see the image. I mean, they've tested it. It's blood. But you now somebody's going to say, oh, well, somebody could have dropped some blood. But it's in water. And then the what gets really fascinating with that is, you know, how on the Shroud of Turin, the blood still is red with these Eucharistic, some of these Eucharistic miracles the blood like that's on a cloth, it has still been red. It's still red. It hasn't darkened the way blood normally does. But some of these, some of these are very fascinating. And, and I'm not just talking about going by, oh, somebody said this happened. You know, they, they are actually examined scientifically. And uh, it was something that I was completely clueless about. And I was kind of like at first, uh, you know, very skeptical. And I, I don't know a whole lot about it. And I haven't um, delved in it a whole lot because obviously the the shroud is fucking. Mm -hmm. We can maybe right expound on one thing you said. Um, going back to the Eucharist, uh, what the way you presented it as a spiritual um, reality and kind of appealed to the mysticism. The Orthodox definitely do that, but they don't go as far as transubstantiation because um, they they are intellectual oh, and they do. are theological. But they they cut it off at a certain point because transubstantiation, in, in their purview, would be too rational 
right? Yeah. Um, so they treat it as a mystery, but uh, Calvin's view is more of that spiritual view. And in the way you were expressing it actually sounded closer to the way Calvin treats his work on the Lord's Supper. But even though Orthodox are humble enough to admit, um, like, we don't know how this happens, mm-hmm. <laughs> they would yeah. still say, like, the, be- the bread and wine are the real body. Uh, versus well, I, mean, yeah, I was listening. I was listening. No, no, no. Absolutely. Just like yeah. the Catholics. We're, there's no different. I mean, we believe in the transubstantiation. I don't know. I, think, I don't think they I don't think they use that term. They, yeah, they, 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 they don't use the term. At least that's what the Orthodox priests that I was yeah, uh, I'm watching. Not, I'm not about. sure if if they use the and I guess I should know that, but I, I'm not sure if they use that term. But in terms of what the transubstantiation means and whether that is the body and blood of Christ that you are consuming, right. you bet there's no difference. And, right. I, and you know, the it's conclusion would be the same. It, pardon? The conclusion is the same with yeah. us and Kat, or us. Wow. <laughs> Orthodox. Oh, uh-huh. uh, yeah. It, no, no, no. Cut the street, Yeah, I'm reading the OCA's page right now, the Orthodox Church in America, yeah. and they actually do they put a halt to transubstantiation because they they have polemics against Western thinking because it's too rational, too philosophical. But yes, the in conclusion is the same I, that I it, think, it really how is it different then i I've i think the main sure. i think the main point of difference is approaching the situation through its material substrate like you said it's not a chemical thing it's not a you know like it's not magic you know, well, it's, I know the catholics it's, don't believe that it turns into a chemical a chemical difference so i'm not sure what the difference is between well i i think i think the 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 thing that that really is the sticking point is is the use of the word symbol Right. In the Western world, because we're so rationalistic, we think that the word symbol simply means useful fiction. That's not what it is, at least not in the ancient sense of what a symbol is meant to be. And so a a symbolic like my face is a symbol for my soul doesn't mean my face doesn't exist or that it's a useful fiction. My face is the thing that my senses can can interact with that normally I would have no access to, which is, in fact, something spiritual. Uh or symbolic or higher something that is above the material reality or behind it even. Uh, And that's something that I think is probably more akin to what we would mean by transubstantiation, at least in an Eastern sense. Um, But, but as, as far as the, uh, as far as the, the, the similarities, I, I, I think you're right about the way that they view it as an actuality rather than a useful fiction in the way that it seems like the reformed uh, crew would kind of, view it more so as uh something that is merely representational um like a like a portrait or a painting but i'm still confused than... as to josh as, what is josh, it the I'll... catholics are thinking that the that the orthodox don't i mean let's let's take away the word transubstantiation what is well, the substantiation is the substance the material substance being trans, trans means across so guys, means to this, change. Might, this might be a good uh subject for a different episode yeah right let me just say this and and then you guys can talk about whatever you want to i think to get back to david's question the main reason if so for example I, and i was listening to my priest talk about this we had an orthodoxy one-on-one class and that subject got brought up and he would say 
that so just say for example i would convert to eastern orthodox the main reason why i would not share uh, the eucharist with you david at that point would be because we have two different views about it you believe that it's something or i believe that it's something that you don't and so that's the number one reason um for that and actually in a greek church you unless you are but how do you how do you not how do you know that unless you ask the person because it's not just just me and what i believe of of communion i believe that the sacraments are a lot more than what we uh uh have traditionally defined them in basic protestant culture I'd, I'd also add that it it does have ecclesiological bearings too like you're not orthodox so in their purview again you're not part of the one the true church. church. You're out of you communion. Right. They, out it's of called communion. fencing the yeah. table. And even my the Presbyterian mm -hmm. church I attend, they fence the table. They say who can and who cannot come. And mm -hmm. some Protestant traditions are stricter than others. But in the apostolic bodies, it's absolutely a no-no to bring an outsider or someone who's not confirmed into the church as a member. They do not have a seat at that table. So Judas, Judas got lucky then, huh? Man, they even let the devil, <laughs> the devil, uh, have communion, but they won't let me. In, no, in the joking. Orthodox Church, which I'll tell you, what's interesting. Um, <laughs> in the Orthodox Church, only somebody who is baptized Greek Orthodox can take communion. Even the Catholics, they don't permit Catholics to take. Whereas in a Catholic church, a Greek Orthodox can receive communion, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I think that's funny because they're schismed from one another, but the Catholics will say, yeah, the Orthodox have valid sacraments. Well, how do they if, they, if they're not in fellowship with the Bishop of Rome? <laughs> that's what makes no sense to me. And. You know, the fallibility of the church. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyways, anyways, well, guys, uh, you know, I think, Josh, I'm going to hand it back to you, buddy. I, you know, I've been talking too long. Uh, I was going to say I was going to say we, we've we've crossed the two hour mark. So at, uh, at the risk of deviating too much further, um, I would say to to center it all back around the discussion, particularly of icons and the veneration of icons and Peugeot's presentation in the video uh, specifically. One of the things that stood out to me uh, in that presentation that was really remarkable that I think I want to ponder further, uh, I wrote it down in the live chat, actually, so I just bring it up. Moses as a symbol of God's faith, shine, sh face shining with glory and impossible to look at. God covers his face to Moses, and so Moses covers his face to the people, and this being something that I think is uh, in the same sense that Peugeot was talking about a promise, a foreshadowing, something like that. If I'm to understand him correctly, I believe that what he's talking about is actually the same thing there, that Moses being in the presence of God and let's say through his relational proximity, receiving some of that shining glory, receiving it and then returning back to the people. And that even just that, let's say the, uh, the secondhand glory, if we want to call it that, is is still too much for the people, so much so that they ask him to cover himself so that they don't have to be confronted by it. You know what uh, it reminds me of? Um, when, you, when you study the Shroud of Turin, uh, one of the things that you find out is that there were over 50 uh, painted copies of the Shroud that were made. 
And when they would paint these copies, and these were all authorized and they're documented, they would get the, the painted copy and touch it to sanctify it to the, the genuine shroud. And that is so that it, in touching it, it has absorbed some of its essence. And that's the sanctified part. And then it becomes a third class relic. And then they would put these copies in churches. And of course, people would, would venerate the copy because not that that's the shroud, but it has been in contact with something that's so holy. And so that when you were talking about discussing Moses and covering his face, his being in the presence of God, some of that specialness kind of blew on to him, for lack of a better choice. So you got the, the problem of reliquaries, actually, that comes up after that, you know? Yeah. I can it, go in there, I can go in there, and and because I touch this relic, I can buy some time out of purgatory. Yeah, <laughs> I know, that's definitely. <laughs> oh, well, man. I mean, anyways, obviously. Anyways, but you know what, guys? Like, let me just jump in here real quick, because mm -hmm. I do, I do want to talk for the other side as well, okay? Because... I, I love Jonathan's uh, presentation. I under, feel like I understand from a layman's perspective uh, this uh, this a little better. Do I subscribe to it? Not yet. You know, I mean, there's still a lot that I don't know. You know, um, I would encourage, and I don't know if anybody here has read The Other Side, the struggle uh, with uh, the mm -hmm. iconoclast. You know, um, I mean, these things are huge volumes. Uh, the one I was looking at had a companion guide to it. I was like, geez, Louise. So this stuff goes a lot deeper, and I would encourage you not to just read one side and then adopt an icon. You know, I wouldn't yeah, I mean, encourage I you not to. I, I wouldn't encourage you the other way either. I would encourage you to look at both sides and then make a, a and rational I, like, One decision. of the things that I disagree with, was it Jonathan Peugeot? Jonathan. Yeah. Jonathan. Um, he was almost given a sort of, oh, kind of if it feels right for you or, you know, a little, it's a little loosey goosey on the scholarship. And I, I don't really like that because especially when you're talking about there being a second commandment saying, you know, you shall not worship any graven images and that includes you know things you know you shouldn't depict things in heaven or beneath the earth you better be pretty sure what you're doing or not doing in yeah. light of that commandment so i'm not i i kind of disagree i felt like he was a little uh just too lenient with with that issue. And I think that that's something that has to be very strictly examined. And, you know, again, that, that debate between James White and, uh, and Patrick Madrid, you know, gets into a lot of stuff. But there are a lot of um, very scholarly videos. There was one, and I can't find where it was, 
that I saw last night, but it was a long one. Um, but it really got into a bunch of the things. But when when you delve deep into it, you start to realize that when they're talking about a graven image and and idols, they're talking about things that are made, things that are not. A God, of course, is not made. Um, but there's uh, an idol is something that is made and is worshiped as a deity. And that's what the prohibition is. And, and, and in terms of in the Bible, we see that there were images of, you know, cherubims, they're angels, you know, from heaven. So those were depicted. So I don't, God clearly seems to be talking about something other than himself. And I agree, you know, he is a jealous God. He tells us this. So, we do have to be very, very careful to, to not get sideways with God. Um, but I don't believe that an icon is because an icon, when you, when you especially, and to me, you know, I, the big icon, big icon to me is, is the shroud of Christ, the holy face. And, um, and that's that's what I like to focus on because I like to I I think it's really amazing to be able to know what with a pretty good deal of confidence what Jesus looked like and to be able to gaze at that face the way you would gaze at, at just somebody that you love so dearly and and like David you were talking about earlier how oh you know you you want to be sure that there's a a clear line and you don't want to overdo it or anything like that. I'll ask you, okay, you know, we're your friends, you know, you love us, but I don't think there's any confusion in your heart in terms of the love that you have for us versus the love that you have to your closest family members. It, it's not really a comparison, is it? And it's, so, a, it's, a, it's a difference in relationship, obviously. But, but there's also a difference in intensity, too. It's it's a spectrum. Well, and, I, I, I better not give you any Eros yeah. <laughs> or Josh or Andrew. <laughs> right. you know, I keep Sophie for you. Right. But, you know, but it's just like the love that I have for the Virgin Mary. It, it's it's great love. I in in studying the shroud, when you when you study those wounds and things like that, and you, and I just and and especially when I look at the holy face, and I just think about what the Virgin Mary in a mother looking at her son on the cross in such torment. And, um, and, it, and it just breaks your heart to just, when you really deeply contemplate that. And then to think of Christ seeing his mother, seeing him that way. That's got to break his, I mean, it's, it's just, the, the tragedy is, it just, it's tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. And so, to for this woman to accept knowing from the get-go that she was going because my understanding is that she would you know she knew things were going to be very hard and she accepted that and um to go through 
what she did and to be chosen you know for some reason god chose her and and i just i really doubt that god just you know like 52 pickup threw up a bunch a deck of cards and ah oh, it landed on mary i don't think that's how god operates i think there was some reason why this woman was chosen to to be the the glorious vessel to house his incarnate self and so yeah that that's a it's an important position that she has and 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 so my heart really goes out to her but but i i don't ever want to have my love for her just like my love for my mother i mean that's pretty intense but i don't want that to ever be anything close to the love that i have for god and so you know people need to be sure to kind of keep that nice line between it and and, and we can be full of love in our heart for saints and and you know for the chief among them you know the blessed virgin mary but let's let's not have our actions behave towards her where people where outsiders can't see a functional difference in terms of the love and the respect that we pay to god versus what we pay to to mary or any of the other saints because if 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 outsiders can't see a distinction then that might be a good sign that you're coming up too close to the line I'll yeah. tell you, I heard in a liturgy, my my um, co-worker is Orthodox, and, yeah. and I started watching her liturgies, and they said in the liturgy, oh, most holy Theotokos, save us. And this was when I was really early into this journey, and I was just like, what? <laughs> I like that language, and I will tell yeah. you, personally, I don't like that language. Um, and and I, I think that I don't know. I, I, I guess, you know, I grew up Greek. The thing that solved it for me was going straight to Father Trinum, Josiah Trinum, and just hearing it straight from his mouth. What do Orthodox mean by that? Because I could wear my Protestant lenses and say that's idolatry, that's blasphemy. But right. Paul even quotes that he becomes all things to all men, that he might save some, and they attribute that different contextual meaning of save not in a civific way that only the triune God can accomplish in a person, but um, Mary in contact with Christ, the same way Paul as a chief apostle could save some. That's what they meant. And I mean, I'm, I felt my blood pressure go back down when I heard that. Like, you know, I had this discussion with, with a couple of friends and it, it's, it goes to the whole idea of Mary as co-redemptrix. And, mm -hmm. And, and I say, for example, like, let's say that um, somebody gets hit by a car and there's a passerby and they stop a good Samaritan. And if the good Samaritan did not take this person to some great surgeon, because the person's like at death's door, if, if the Samaritan didn't do anything, the person's going to die. Okay, let's just take that as a given. But then the Samaritan takes the person to the hospital and this fantastic surgeon saves them. Now, 
and let's say that the surgeon also, let's just to make it more clear, the surgeon has skills that the typical surgeon doesn't have. It's just a world-class surgeon. Um, did the Samaritan save the person? Well, he kind of had a hand in saving the person in that if he hadn't have acted, the person would have died. But the real person that, that did something totally special is the doctor, is the surgeon, especially if it was a super complicated situation where the average surgeon couldn't have saved the person, but some specialist managed to do it. It's really the surgeon that did it, but the other person, you know, they were a helper, they were an assistant. And to me, there's only one person that saves us and, and redeems us, and that's Jesus Christ. Because there was only one person on that cross suffering, and there was only one person at the Garden of Gethsemane that was sweating blood because he was so scared, yet he then took that blood and, you know, or took that cup and, and drank it in, basically. He, he accepted, uh, even though he had, um, for a moment, you know, that earth, that human fear, knowing what was going to be happening to him. But it was only one person that, that that happened to, and that was Christ. And And so I don't like mixing words for example when when you know like dale and i when we go around and we talk to people about the the shroud of christ the shroud of turin i mean we're trying to help save souls but we're not really saving souls we're just we're we're like the good samaritan trying to bring people to christ so that christ can save them but you know we're we're trying to be helpful helpers um, so I think that's what the, you know, some people think of is, is Mary in that had she not assented to, to do what she did. I mean, of course, God could have then just picked some other woman, but still, you know, she went through a lot. So I, she, she deserves a lot of respect. I mean, think about it here. She is pregnant, unwed. Joseph, her fiance, is about to dump her thinking and, and think of how embarrassing that's got to be for him. I mean, just the whole situation is just a nightmare. Yeah. You know, she understands what she's been called to do and, and she did it. And, you know, God bless her for that. You know what? I'm 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 very thankful for how this uh, discussion has gone. I'm yeah. I'm really yeah, it's been blessed. great. I, um, I'm, I'm really glad that we got through that whole video. I feel like it's a miracle that we did, uh, but I'm so glad that we got through that whole video and that this has been so copacetic and everything. There's some really great questions. Uh, and I feel like this is the start of a, uh, a really interesting ongoing conversation because icons have been kind of a hot topic, uh, recently, uh, in the theological circles. And so I feel like, uh, what we're accomplishing through this episode is probably pretty cutting edge uh, for 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 the conversation itself. And I feel like it would be wise for more people to think very carefully about these things. Um, 
where where the lines are drawn like david's question about the anathemas is this it's very important for us to know and to learn and to understand before we say i agree or disagree uh in these in these kind of things because it's really complicated it's not a uh, it's not a cut and dry I, I i wish i wish the text was as clear as i want it to be and yet i here i am sitting with these questions uh in my in my big fat ball of uncertainty and so i i am very thankful are you concerned for, that it's that that icons are graven images what is your no uh, my my concern is being careful with thinking about things that i don't know yet uh, i'm speaking more generally about the way that we approach difficult topics in this channel uh, when we're talking about any topic in which the church has disagreement, mm -hmm. uh, whether that be newer topics or older topics, uh, being able to listen carefully and understand something I think is always has to come before this dogmatic, I agree or disagree. Sure. Um, and, and those kind of statements often are where the conversation derails and ends. And so I'm glad that that didn't happen here. Mm -hmm. and I'm really pleased. I'm very blessed by how many participants we had and how, uh, how lit the live chat was. That was really cool. But um, we're at about the two and a half hour mark now. Yeah. Uh, and I think it would probably be a good idea to close out here. Absolutely. Um, close us out, Josh. I'll let you do it. Uh, in, in, uh, I'm, I'm so blessed. Thank you, Teddy, for, for all your interaction. I've been really blessed by that. And it's, uh, to be honest with you, it's kind of cool uh, in the intro there as you were talking about the shroud and it, it occurs to me that that's the, that's really the only icon other than humanity that God really himself made. If it's authentic, right? So you know, one of that's the, unique. One of the things that I was reading um, was talking about how, you know, Genesis basically tells us that God was the original iconographer mm -hmm. in terms of creating um, humans in the image of God. And then of course, his incarnate self. And so uh, exactly. there's a long tradition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. God's tradition, remaking yep. and remaking. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also really blessed that Sherman was here for the time that he was uh, and his interaction. That guy's brilliant, seriously brilliant. Uh, it's awesome to have uh, Dale back on and Dane. Uh, I wish Tyler was able to stay, but I guess his connection uh, was, was uh, faulting at the end there. Uh, Andrew, it's wonderful to have you back as well. And of course, David, uh, you are uh, you are a master of sarcasm and pushback. Fantastic. Um, but all in of honor, love. All <laughs> right. Uh, in, in honor of Tyler, who is uh, not here right now, uh, I guess it's my turn to say uh, good night. God bless and stay like Christ. <laughs>